asshole brother bought her back in September 57. That's when you got your new model year in September. Brand new she was. She had the smell of a brand new car. It's just about the finest smell in the world. Except maybe for podcast. They smell so good. I mean, I knew that was what I was going to do. The variation was obviously, oh man, there is nothing finer than being behind the wheel of your own car. Except maybe for podcast. But I like that that one's more drawn out. Yeah, the smell. Smell is funny. Smell is funny. Robert's Blossom, right? That's his name. Who we've covered before because he was the dad in, uh, what's it called? Citizens Band. Correct. Uh, Handle with Care, a.k.a. Handle right. with Care. Yes. But he's also, he's, he's the kind old man who seems scary. Right. In, 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 in Home Alone. That's how I yeah. know him. He, he's the nice old man. Old Man Marley, I believe. Old Man yeah. Marley. Correct. Uh, but a great name. Just a great uh, sort of uh, salty old character actor. The addition of the, the back brace in this movie. Whatever Unexplained. this thing is that he's wearing. Yep. It's like a scoliosis brace or whatever. Yeah, it really completes the look. Uh, Robert's Blossom. We love him. We love him. Not as much as we love, of course, one of our favorite people to talk about in this podcast. Thank God. Back in the pocket. Robert Prosky. He's your virtual Prosky. background today for today's recording. One of our ultimate dudes. Stupid virtual background. I was trying to cup his head. He's so... I just... I didn't know. His face. I didn't know about his face in this movie. He is... He's got sour lemon face the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> He's so gross. Is he not one of the finest junkyard actors of our of our time? Yes. Yeah. A, a do-it-yourself garage. Yeah. Oh, he is just the looks that he is uh, throwing in this are incredible. Yeah. Oh, it just, uh, a very quick uh, uh, parallel side tangent before I introduce this podcast or our show. The premise itself. Yes. Yeah. Uh, or a guess. Um, the, uh, when, when I was rewatching The Thing for last week's episode, uh, Kurt Russell keeps on saying Fuchs over and over again, right? Because uh, one of the guys on the base is Fuchs. And I was like, why does this, like, why am I getting such a deja vu from Kurt Russell saying Fuchs over and over again? What other movie has a character named Fuchs that I'm confusing this with? And then I realized it's fucking used cars where both of the Jack Warden characters are named Fuchs. And it's literally Kurt Russell saying Fuchs in two different movies over and over again. Two different movies, a couple movies, a couple years apart, too. Yeah. Yeah. I just, something was hitting my ear about Russell saying Fuchs in that exasperated tone. Uh, But that's, this isn't a Fuchs cast. It's not. It's not. We thought about it. And Jack Warden is not Robert Prosky, but, you know. But they're similar. That's that's the thing (laughs) that linked them in my mind. (laughs) Right. I would have loved to see a a Prosky versus Warden movie. Like Freddy versus Jake. They're just just two grumpy junkyard owners who won't talk to each other. Yes. Because of (laughs) some perceived slight from like 30. I don't like that guy. Uh, he gave me, I don't know, he gave me a bad look in in, in 82. I, I don't like that guy. He gave me what for? Uh-huh. No, like, was there ever a movie with Robert Prosky and Jack Warden together? It feels like there should have been. I don't know. Would have been too grumpy. Too cranky too a grumpy. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Folks, this is Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. 
and I uh, did it, a collaboration search and no Prosky and Warden crossover wow. ever. Wow. Sad. Yeah. It's a, Dan St. Germain, the comedian, had a great bit about um, uh, Ides of March being uh, Freddy versus Jason for uh, depressed men because it had Giamatti and PSH, uh, PSH as rival <laughs> campaigners. Uh, people should look it up. He does really good impressions of both of those guys uh, comparing who is more depressed about their life circumstances. <laughs> but this is a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. And this is a, this is a post bounce. Have we come up ever with a good term? Hmm. for? Because the guarantor is the thing that gives you the blank check. Right, we have not come up with a post bounce. I don't this know. Yeah, credit bounce. recovery. Right. I, I, I don't that's, know. I don't know what this. Right. Is this is a mortgage? Is. is this? I'm messing up term. But you know, but it's like. Is it a credit report? Maybe. Yeah. He, Re- he's rebound, like rebound. Right. Yeah. He's like in arrears right now. Yeah. Right. Right. It's a re- it's a rebound movie. It's a I got to prove to them that I can get the thing done again. Yes. Uh, kind of movie. Uh, because we're talking about the films of John Carpenter, who certainly fits that description. Uh, it's a miniseries called They Podcast. And uh, this is uh, his only Stephen King adaptation, which True. doesn't sound like an odd stat, except for the fact that this is a man who was working in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, primarily in the horror genre. <laughs> and it feels like that was 30% of what got produced in the studio system at that point in time. Yeah, George Romero hogged all the other ones. Right. Mm-hmm. It is kind of wild, though, that it's like pretty much all the canonical studio horror guys of this era did at least one king. You had to do a king at some point. And Carpenter almost did Firestarter. Right. Right. It was just like you're going to have to do it at some point. And, um, you know, coming off of the thing, which, you know, bizarrely the most detested movie of all time (laughs) at its release and this huge commercial flop for Carpenter taking on. Uh, King movie uh, probably was like, well, I guess I got to do a Marvel movie just to prove. <laughs> right. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I just need a surefire. Something super popular. Right. right. It was like he was the one of the most uh, preeminent sort of genres in film, certainly commercially. Uh, I was reading in, in the dossier of uh, research prep for this episode that, like, to put context, it was just like Clancy wasn't a thing yet. Grissom wasn't a thing yet. Like, he was the one kind of novelist who was a brand in, in and of himself. In a way, sort of, we talked about uh, the weird Neil Simon mega franchise of the 70s through 80s. Yeah. No, I mean, there's no no question. Even with those guys at the height of their power, maybe J.K. Rowling it kind of hit the status that Stephen King did. But, like, even Michael Crichton or Dean Poont outsells yeah. King, right. believe it or not. Uh, but nobody knows who the fuck Dean Koontz is, you no. know, outside of popular. It, it's years, a outside of, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It, King Stephen King did a really great job of making himself a brand. Uh, Cause I mean, he did an American express commercial in the eighties, you know, for God's sakes, like he was on talk shows and, you know, he's kind of this weird guy with a weird voice and he had thick, you know, Coke bottle glasses. You know, there was just something, you know, like perfectly fitting. He has the perfect name to be a horror icon (laughs) right off the top of it. Stephen King, of course, he's writing horror, horror books. Uh, And then he looks like, you know, especially at the time, he kind of looked like a weirdo. So, you know, it's, you know, but he he had that. Yeah, he had the enthusiasm and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So he made himself a brand in an era where like that just wasn't done by authors. You know, Peter Straub wasn't a known face, you know, 
read by people, even though Ghost Story probably sold more than anything that uh, King, you know, had written up to that point. So if you folks can't already tell, we brought in some experts this week. Hell yeah. This is Christine. We're talking about the killer car movie. And we have Scott Wampler and Eric Vespi from the King cast to help put this in perspective for us. Give us the context. I open up because this was I mean, maybe this is a stat. It's hard to double check. But I someone I, I know jokingly referred recently to Maximum Overdrive being one of the only movie posters featuring the director <laughs> primarily like visually. That's Dino De Laurentiis, man. You know, right. But Hitch, like and, and Hitchcock had done that before. Hitchcock was like, yeah, featured on his movie posters. But and he's like trailers. not even in it. Like, I'm just looking at this one here that is Stephen King's masterpiece of terror directed by the master himself. And the yep. primary image is Stephen King ripping through the truck with a cross. To be fair, he is in the movie. He has a cameo. Oh, he is? Like, yeah, okay. right up front. He's the guy that gets hit in the, in the beanbag with a, uh, uh, like a can of soda out of a machine. No, he, he's at an ATM. He's at an ATM, remember? In the oh, ATM that's right. That, that's right. I'm thinking of the baseball coach. Yeah, the baseball coach. I just think, like, this poster treats him as if he's Tom Cruise. Like, everyone else on the poster is a centimeter tall. <laughs> <laughs> Including Emilio Estevez, like, post yes, the breakfast club. Yes, who's a big star. Have you, seen, um, uh, have you seen the trailer? The trailer is him yes. just talking to the screen. Showing off the like, truck. For, like, half of the trailer. Right. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, yes, that was like a, a Hitchcock thing, obviously. Like, Hitchcock had trailers like that where he would just explain his movie to you. Um, but it does speak to Hitchcock was also on TV on a weekly basis. You yeah, know, his film right. career had gone on for decades. He had directed a Best Picture winner. Like, all this shit. And Stephen King, just within a decade, went from being, like, novelist to film franchise to kind of the name himself, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and... And again, that's like Dino playing the the full huckster thing to the to the hilt. You know, yeah. he knew that I, I have no doubt that Dino knew that that movie wasn't great, but he knew that Stephen King was a star more so than anything else. And so that's what he sold it on for sure. And that trailer is fucking hilarious. Like, that's what? just one of the best <laughs> yeah. trailers ever. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Yeah, he's not wearing his glasses, so he's kind of cross eyed as yeah, he's yeah, talking. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's, it's iconic. I love it. It's just always funny when you have the things like, because I guess, I mean, what? Uh, Shining doesn't have Stephen King's The Shining, right? It's not until he remakes it. It still gets to primarily be. Hmm, let's see. Stanley Kubrick. That was definitely Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah. yeah he's yeah, credited, yeah. of course, but he's yeah. not. No, but he's not like on the poster, on right? The that famous poster. Right. Yeah, no, it's just a masterpiece of modern right. horror. I'm thinking of like auteur directors who have done Stephen King movies and like Dead Zone is Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Mm -hmm. But right. Carpenter gets John Carpenter's Christine, even though the movie is obviously being sold on King as well. Well, that's a Car John Carpenter thing like that. that John, it's John Carpenter's everything. That, that's just his thing. I, David Cronenberg doesn't have like David Cronenberg's The Fly. You know, it's like it, it, I don't know. Maybe it's an ego thing. Maybe it's a, a name brand thing. I have no idea why that is. Oh, sure. I mean, I know it, I know it's like Carpenter had just sort of established that as the as the precedent at that point. But it's like when you see that the movie is called Stephen King's Dead Zone, you're almost surprised when you're like Carpenter directed this and they're not even mentioning that. They're no, still sort yeah. of framing it as Stephen King's thing, you know? I'm trying um, to figure I'm trying to figure this out. Like when the first yeah. Well see the dead zone is definitely Stephen King's the dead zone. Yeah, I don't it know. I don't be, know. That Keep, might be it. 
Yeah, that might be. I it. mean, there's also the variation in like whether they use that in the title for the movie or on the poster in the marketing right. or neither. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure, sure, mm-hmm. sure. I mean, I, I honestly think that it really just happens to be because Stephen King and adaptations of his work, it's why we started a whole podcast about it, um, are just so intertwined. It's the reason why I think he's such a pop culture icon is because mm-hmm. everybody, even if they've never read a Stephen King book, they they ingested a dozen Stephen King stories. Just through osmosis, everybody's seen Misery. You know, everybody's seen Stand By Me. Everybody's seen Shawshank Redemption. Everybody's seen Carrie, you know? So, like, people know his his work just through the adaptations. So, you know, The Shining, blah, blah, blah. If you watch nothing but The Simpsons and Saturday Night Live, you would pick up on plenty of King, you know, material. Right, there's, there's so much uh, there. And it's also just the fact that the guy was so fucking prolific, worked so fucking fast. Pumping him out. These right. fucking long-ass books. Right. Where, like, Christine this... is what, like 600 pages, right? Well, none of, I just, it's too long. I just want to be yeah. clear. That had nothing to do with the mountains of cocaine he was, he was skiing oh, down. Well, no, day. I mean, well, uh, yeah. I, I, look, I have not read as much Stephen King as you guys. But, yes, yeah, sometimes you're reading a book and there's like a whole hundred pages where you're like, was this just like an evening for him? Yeah. Love like just oh, yeah. like busting, you know, so much coke and being like, yeah, and then this happened, and then you know, it just that's how it always feels. Read read the Tommy knockers and you'll feel like you just got out of a three-day bender in Vegas. <laughs> it's it's that novel sweats when you hold it in your hand. <laughs> there there are books that he admits to having no memory of writing. For right. Sure. Right. For sure. Like the actual act of writing it is a blur for him. Cujo. He just knows that it could Cujo and the Tommy knockers specifically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And Dreamcatcher, he was pretty much in a haze on from, you know, he got he got hit by that van. That's the pain med one. Right. right? That's yeah. Post yeah. getting yeah. hit by the, the car. Yeah. yeah. He was yeah. on Oxy. Yeah. Right. He wanted to call that. What, did you know he wanted to call that book cancer and his wife talked him out of it? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dr- I, it, I don't it, know. It's it, that book and movie very legible and very very obvious and yeah. you know it's formulaic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it definitely doesn't scream. Yeah. I'm on goofballs <laughs> and in great pain. Oh God, I need to write anything to distract me from the horrible pain in my bones, stitching themselves back together. And he yeah. wrote that thing longhand. He wrote yeah. that like just on legal pads. That that book is like nine hundred pages long or some crazy shit. It's kind of wild how much him getting hit by that car was like a news story. Considering that it wasn't the kind of thing that often happens now where like someone's injured and all of Twitter is doing like prayer hands and candle circle and going like, (laughs) we can't lose you. It was just like everyone thought it was so funny. And I think it has to do with the idea that he like reads to people as this weird supernatural figure more than a man, even down to just like, yes, how goofy he looks and how big he is. I just remember it was like immediately people were making like the fucking late night talk shows were doing monologue jokes about it that showed no consideration for this guy's pain. (laughs) It was just like, what a weird curio. This giant, scary novelist was hiking through the woods in the middle of the night. Like, it's a spooky thing, you know, like a chupacabra jumped in front of your car. (laughs) Well, and it's a guy that's written about a lot. I mean, we're talking about one of the stories he's written, you know, about a a car that runs people over the gauge creed and pet cemetery gets hit. Maximum overdrive is all about cars running people over. So there, there is a weird, it felt like the beginning of a Stephen King book. Yeah. Yeah. That's the inciting incident. Mr. Mercedes. Another, another one that opens. He's got a weird thing with cars. I, I recently came to the realization that King also has like a weird thing with corn. You know, mm-hmm. we were, we were just the talking band? about this. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> He's a big freak on the leash guy. 
Producer Ben, incredible contribution. Thank you. No, but like, you know, there's corn on the cob is like a recurring motif in a lot of Stephen King stuff. And uh, if I ever get to corner that guy on our show, uh, one of my first questions is going to be, like, all right, what's the deal with the corn? We got to talk about the corn now. Why is there's children in it? It's used to stab people in a lot of Stephen King stuff. Sleepwalkers. A cop gets stabbed by an ear of corn. Johnny Depp eats corn at the end of Secret Window while wearing braces. I would like to point out. Yeah. What a weird fucking movie. There's see when you obsess over this and you do a podcast about a a single author, you start picking up on really random bullshit. And as as you'll see as this conversation goes on, I'm sure my my friend and I interviewed. uh, Nicholas Cage once uh, for a magazine that didn't really exist uh, when he was doing Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance press and we had tried to watch all of his movies in like the two weeks leading up to that and I watched like 80% of them right before the the sort of uh, Avi Lerner red box boon of him doing eight movies a month uh-huh. um, but we were like trying to chart weird uh, you know repetitive elements in his movies and see how much of them were conscious. Did he, was he attracted to the material because of these things? Did he put these things in them? And we were like, why are there so many wolves in your movies? And he's like, I don't think I've ever done a movie with a wolf. And then we were like, here are 12 instances of films (laughs) in which you come face to face with a wolf and have a profound moment. And he's like, Oh yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I guess I just think wolves are cool. They but are it was cool. like there was no interiority there. You know, I wonder if King could tell you like my dad used to yell at me to finish my corn. And so it's like a figure of menace. Or if you bring it up to him and he'd be like, I don't know. Is there corn in my work? I don't know. It's that it's it's going to be the second version. We had uh, Steven Weber on the show once and he he was the he played Jack Torrance in the miniseries version of The Shining. And uh, unlike the Kubrick one. Uh, Stephen King was there on set for every minute of that. He was super hands on. And like Weber told us a story about how um, like there's this turn of phrase right in there. Scott where it's talking about some sort of pattern of a carpet. It's like and, a stanza's and, worth of poetry in the middle of the book. Yeah, right. And he was like, oh, this is the perfect thing. And he and she's like, I interpret it because this is the way Jack Torrance is feeling in this moment and all that. And he's like, I'm going to go ask King about it since he's right there behind the you know monitor. And he goes up to King and asks him about it. He goes, I don't know. When I was writing it, that's I just looked down and that was the thing on my carpet. That's what my carpet looked like. Yeah, like I was probably <laughs> drunk and that was the pattern on the floor. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. OK. Well, also, for a guy to write that many books, he has to be just existing in some kind of like flow state, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, he, he regularly writes. brings yeah. in people to, you know, um, well, I don't know about regularly, but he has on several occasions, like brought in people that are that basically act, act as historians for him and will correct, um, you know, mistakes that he's made with things that he's written. You know, he, he did that on the Dark Tower to keep the lore clean. And he um, his he also own did it. mythology. You're yeah, saying. his own mythology. Yeah. yeah. You know, and but he's been he's been piecing that own mythology together since he was in college. So it's like 40 years worth of stuff. So he'll just forget things. Yeah, that's wild. I wait. I had a point, and I, I forgot. It. Keep keep talking, guys. King I was, thinking, I was, I was, I was <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Well, I guess my favorite King book is Pet Cemetery, which is an obvious choice. And I have not read every King book by by any means. There's a lot of them. Um, why? Uh, why I don't know Pet if you Cemetery? guys know that. Um, I mean, why is that? My it just it's so boring. But like you know, I read it when I was probably a late teenager, somewhere in the, somewhere in there, and it's like just 
that that you know that early part of the book where he wakes up and he's got the um, dirt all over his feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, was it's just one of those like seminal moments reading a book where I was like, holy shit, I can't go to sleep now. Right. You know what I mean? Like like. <laughs> right. Uh, and you know, I like a lot of I, I like basically any Stephen King that I pick up. I feel like I've read like a dozen of them or whatever. But I was yeah. just thinking, Pet Cemetery. This is right. This is a thought from ten minutes ago. But like that has the trucks rumbling down right? the road. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. he's really freaked out by vehicles. That's all. That's all. And that's what. That's the same year as Christine. He cranked that shit out. It's the same year, right? Same novel. It's not. Well, you know, I think it was pub- it was published the same the same year. Published but the same he- year. Yeah. Yeah, he he wrote it much earlier. That's one of like a very infamous thing because that was one he had said he was never going to publish because it was too disturbing, even for him. Because he was working out as a you know father of of a bunch of young kids, he was working out a lot of his own fears in that. And uh, like what? Because when you ask Stephen King, he gets that question all the time: "What scares Stephen King?" And he'll go like the dark or spiders or whatever the hell. But like when you can when he doesn't answer it as a with a joke and he answers seriously, it is you know it's he's like it is walking in to check on my kids and they're not breathing. You know, it's like that, that is the real fear. That's the thing. Ugh, you know. Debbie Downer, Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, every once in a while, then he'll, he'll pull out the serious version of that, but that's what, you know, that book was disturbing for him. It was disturbing for uh, his wife. It was disturbing for Tabitha. And they were like, he essentially said he was going to shelve it. And uh, he talked for years about. Yes. Having, that's having right. I remember it. the prologue. He, right. And the, he talks about all this. Right. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. then, and then like he, book. He he essentially had a, a a book deal. He was trying to get out of. Was it he was moving on the Viking? I think, or or he was leaving Viking. One of the two. Uh, and he owed one more book, and he didn't want to give him the new one that he was writing. So he just pulled Pet Cemetery off the shelf. Said, "All right, you can have this one." And it turned out to be like legit one of his most scary books. Like, there's not there's not a whole lot of Stephen King. And as somebody who's read everything he's written you know, obsessively and examined it. Uh, I'm not really scared that often by Stephen King stuff. Like I, I love reading it. I'm entertained by it. I love his characters. Um, there's moments in it that really get under my skin. There's moments in, um, the shining uh, does it for me. Yeah. There's a couple of things. Yeah. In the shining specifically, there's a couple of moments. Uh, but pet cemetery is almost from beginning to end, just a bleak, dark, get under your skin and stay there. It, it, it feels meaner than most king stuff does uh revivals is a is a recent one that he wrote that um that kind of hits those same notes by the end but uh but even that one it's not as bleak the entire way through there's like a sense of doom throughout pet cemetery that you just you just can't shake there is no really easy respite you know to find in that in that book hell yeah that's yeah i guess that's probably, but i have not read christine and I do think of that as one of those sort of big, hefty ones that I never got around to. Well, that was right. I mean, the the, the process of adaptation for this movie was pretty much just we're only going to make a fourth of this. Right. Like, right. There's just too much. This is in the state where he's churning them out. I mean, because this the movie comes out like three months after the book comes out or within the same year. Certainly. Yeah. It, it was optioned as a manuscript. And that and Cujo kind of were presented at the same time. And there was such a feeding frenzy for his movies. I mean, ironically enough, David, did you see who the producer is who put this movie together and brought Carpenter on? Uh, well, uh, I'm now I'm not sure. Tell me, because I mean, we have our dossier, obviously. I'm looking at is it Richard Kobritz? Oh, it's Richard Kobritz. Who we were just joking right? about. Yeah. 
Uh, yes. Well, we we watch someone's watching me, guys. I don't know if you guys ever seen someone's watching me, the TV movie mm. John Carpenter made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a good movie. Uh, but because it's a TV movie, it ends on a freeze frame of the main character's face, and then it just goes executive producer Richard Kovitz, you know, in this kind <laughs> of like kind of jarring, <laughs> right? Kind of jarring, like say, you know, next up on NBC, it's the local news, like you know. And uh, so uh, that's funny, Richard. And then I was making fun of Richard Coburn. Like clearly, TJ Hooker episode or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he must be. Uh, well, but well, he's so, not. Oh, no, he, he is. He's David a producer. Right. I looked yeah, into okay. it. Yes, he was a Warner Brothers TV guy. Then he did the Salem Lot miniseries, and then he went on his own as an independent producer because he had the relationship with King from Salem's Lot. He gets offered Cujo and Christine as the next two things he has his new manuscripts. He picks Christine, and then he knows that Carpenter is a little bit down and out post thing, and that the Firestarter adaptation that he was close to going on had been shit canned. And so he goes straight to Carpenter and offers it to him. Uh, it's entirely because of his experience on Someone's Watching Me. Right. Do you guys like Cujo? Are you Cujo fans? Yeah. I've only I've seen the movie. I've never read the book. The books, the book's good, and the movie, the movie, I think, is the most interesting uh of the two um i hadn't seen it since i was a kid until we did an episode on it like sometime within the last year oh we had fucking who was it um mark danieluski the guy that wrote house of leaves he came on and did cujo and and we had d wallace before him. oh yeah we, yeah we interviewed d, d wallace about it but you know before one of those i revisited it for the first time since i was a kid and my memory of it was that it was just you know two people trapped in a car with a dog but uh on on revisitation and with a you know a more developed uh cinematic palette i found it way more satisfying and now i'm kind of like that movie's undervalued i i really really like it and particularly you know in the universe of uh king adaptations where where does christine rank for you guys That's my next question right. right not not specific numerically but like in the sort of larger canon as dudes who are uh such experts on the films and the books where where is christine in the pack i i might be a little bit uh atypical in that uh, like listen uh t- talking just as a because f- i'm a film geek first and foremost that's kind of what i started started at, yeah, as i came to king through the movies like most you know people i think did uh, at least in my generation. And, you know, and I'm a huge John Carpenter fan, like massive. I think the run that he makes between Assault on Precinct 13 to They Live is all-timer stuff. Uh, I think this is one of the weakest of, of that group. Um, and I think that there are moments in this movie that are f- fucking great. Um, the show me moment, you know, with um, uh, Keith Gordon, you know, kind of and Christine reassembling herself Incredible. Is, is amazing. Yeah. The imagery of the car on fire, you know, chasing people down is really rad. Um, and I also am very nostalgic for that time period where you can, you know, just the film grain of this era and the character actors that pop up and all this stuff. Like I'm very nostalgic for it, but I still, I probably value this less than most people who, um, who love King and King's stuff. Uh, do i don't think it's a bad movie i just think it's to me it's a little forgettable yeah i think it's mid-tier i I think it's like mid-tier overall and it's just not one if if i wanted to sit down and pick a random stephen king movie and watch it uh 
Christine would not be one of the first that that comes to mind. You know, I would go with Cujo, I would go with The Shining, or I would go with, you know, there's plenty I would get to before Misery. Before Christine. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Shawshank. Shawshank. I'm inclined to agree with you, Eric, but it really is like you look at his 70s, 80s run, right? He doesn't really miss until the 90s. It's like this sort of by default has to be his weakest movie. Yes. But the fact that this this is the weakest movie in that run, A, speaks to how much the dude was just on fire for like 16 years, and B, the fact that he hit the ground running so hard. Because this feels like it's maybe like the first movie of a director who then goes on to really get his shit down, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is definitely, uh, you can tell that there's a one for them mentality here. And we've touched on that a little bit already. Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating, just as you mentioned, this is him uh, working within the studio going, uh, okay, I made this movie. I thought it was great. Nobody liked it. Studio didn't like it. Audiences didn't like it. It turns out to be like one of the most, you know, a long-term successful movies of his career. But at the time, huge flop. And uh, this is him going, okay, I can make a dependable, bankable thing. and. Um, and it's really interesting when you look at, uh, especially uh, when you consider that Firestarter was what he was originally going to do when he do- dove into Stephen King's world. Uh, he wanted to make that a road movie, is my understanding, is like his script was a father daughter, you know, uh, tale on the road. And he it's <laughs> funnily enough, you look at um, Starman, Starman. Yes, and, absolutely. And, and you go, this is uh, this is this is the Amblin version of Firestarter, his version of Firestarter. You know, it's the nice alien version of Firestarter. Um, it's his road movie, you know, people on the run being chased by government agents or what whatnot. You know, it's uh, he, he was doing interesting things around here, but then he was still able to pop off. Like, I think one of Carpenter's most underrated movies is Prince of Darkness. Like, I love Prince of Darkness. I think it's a it's it is both weird and gets bogged down in scientific gobbledygook, but it's also one of the scariest things he's ever made. Like, I think that Prince of Darkness is scarier than Halloween, personally. Like, I just think that the Tony he sets and like, you know, almost the cosmic horror that he almost dips into with with that thing is is just in the madness. It's really, really terrifying. And, you know, that was kind of a miss, too. And Big Trouble in Little China, one of my all time favorites of his huge. It was another big miss. But like, those are all the ones that seem to survive. You know, yeah. Christine doesn't seem to be it, definitely when you talk about Carpenter, Christine very rarely gets brought up, you know, in front of Escape from New York or, you know, or Big Trouble or, you know, it, it'll pop up before Prince of Darkness for most people, but not for me. But, I mean, the quote that I think is really telling about this movie, uh, let me just get this uh, directly. This was, I guess, some sort of career retrospective interview he did for Variety in 2019. And he said, I needed a job after the thing because nobody would hire me. So this came along and I took the job. And it turned out better than it had any right to. That's that's the line that I think is really telling that, like, he very much says this was the first time in his career that he was sort of for hire that it wasn't a passion project, that it wasn't a thing that he developed. And even he is surprised that it's better than the level of passion he had going into it, which I think speaks to the fact that this guy kind of has too much respect for film as a medium and too much (laughs) contempt for the amount of like lazy, arrogant, sloppy assholes working to ruin shit in the industry at the time. 
that he like cannot shit out a movie at this point, you know? Right. Like as much as he's like, I just got to show up, make my days, get it done, have a respectable hit. He's like, I guess I cared more than I thought I did. You know, it's just a, a little bit better in every sense than it has any right to be. Yeah, it's a which, testament to his uh, his ability as a, as a craftsman. As you said, he this is if this is him doing something without his heart in it, it's it's better than most people who are trying really hard to make make a, a good thing. Yeah. Right. And the movies it pales in comparison to are films where you're just like, I cannot believe how much he put into this. Like he's just putting a Herculean amount into every single aspect. Um, well, just about Christine. It's like like you said about like now it would be, oh, geez, I guess I make a Marvel a superhero movie where like. This is also, I have to imagine at the time, kind of an eye-rolling project for, you know, uh, hoity-toity critics, right? Where it's like, oh, he's doing a, a Stephen King movie. What's it about? Oh, it's the one about the killer car. Okay, mm-hmm. right? Like, isn't the, you know, this is probably a movie people look down their nose at a little bit in 1983. Especially when you consider that 83 is like Cujo and Christine. These are the two manuscripts that are up for grabs to make into a King movie. And it's like, wait, so one's like a car and one's a dog. Like, I guess it writes itself, you know? All I need to hear is Stephen King makes the bad dog movie. Stephen King makes the <laughs> right. the bad car book, you know, whatever. And then it's just like, okay, one, it's about teenagers. The other, it's a mother, son. Okay, what? Well, yeah, sure. I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, right. it just yeah. almost maybe feels like formula on its face. Firestarter, he was going to do with uh, Lancaster, who wrote the thing, and then, in fact, ended up never making another movie ever again. Uh, That was going to be about $30 million. It was going to be a bigger budget thing, sort of uh, at the same level of uh, as the thing. And Richard Dreyfuss was going to be it. He was going to have a big proven, at this point, Academy Award winning movie star in it. And then when the thing underperforms, uh, they bring in... Uh, what's his name? The eventual writer of this movie, Bill Phillips, because I think their thing was everyone was freaked out by how fucking cold and cynical and bleak the thing was. Is that Carpenter's tendency? If we let him go all the way, we need to bring someone in who's more cuddly. And Bill Phillips, by his own admission, was like a very cheery kind of blue sky screenwriter. And the studio's calculation was split the difference, end up with something in the middle. Carpenter can make it scary. Bill Phillips can't write scary. But Bill Phillips can put emotion in the thing and Carpenter can't. So they assign him to rewrite and redevelop uh, Firestarter with Dreyfus. Carpenter, you know, pre the thing had negotiated this deal. He had been on a big hit run. Stephen King's a big deal. Uh, He's got Richard Dreyfus. So Universal agrees to pay or play for the movie which means that whether or not the film gets made, John Carpenter is going to get his full salary. Uh, it was arguably the one time in his career where he had that kind of clout. Pretty much the only time, right, right. Uh, but Universal was like increasingly dubious about making the film and certainly giving him that much creative freedom. So they like slash the budget in half. They go like, you wanted 27, we'll give you 14. And Carpenter is very known for he writes to the specific dollar amount. He knows how much mm-hmm. everything is going to cost. He understands the production logistics. He plans out a movie to that scope. Uh, he could not cut his idea in half. And it was either I don't make the movie and I get paid or I make the movie this way and it's going to suck. I'd rather just not make the movie. Right. So he walks, which I think perhaps even fucks up his reputation a little bit more. 
uh, which then just gets saved by, uh, what's his name? Koblitz having the, the Christine brights and wanting him. Um, the, uh, stat, I think I, he's got to, he's got to view Christine though, in that, in that context as kind of a consolation prize, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, like he's, he's definitely like we've established, he's, he's working for hire on it, but elevating the material in the process just because of his natural talents as a filmmaker. But also if I'm him, I'm like, well, I really wanted to do this one, but I guess this is sort of it. It's also a Stephen King and you know, I can make it scary and blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah. And I don't think he's like, right. He's desperate to do just any Stephen King thing, right? Like he's interested in Firestarter for specific reasons. That's it's sort of the same zip code. You know. Yeah, exactly. And like Firestarter is it's sort of a movie. So I don't know if Drew Barrymore was going to be in it when he made it. I, I don't know. I, I don't, don't know how much so. there was anyone attached to it yet. But like in Christine, it's like, well, the movie star is the car and then we'll cast a bunch of, you know, smaller names. It, right. Am I crazy or did I hear that? Um uh, We were talking. We had uh, Phil Nobile Jr., the editor in chief of Fangoria. And he he has like did a deep dive on the Firestarter that almost was. And we had him on the, the show. And I think he said that um, uh, what's her, Heather O'Rourke, Carol Ann from Poltergeist was. Supposed oh, that to makes be sense. The main, was yeah, to be yeah the there you go. Another yeah. right. Another uh, child girl blonde, star. Little blonde girl. Blessed by Spielberg. Spielberg. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, when I like find the, the quotes about why Carpenter took the movie aside from just the like, I needed a job. I was unhirable. They were the only people willing to hire me. I was tired of not making a movie. I was a, you know feeling antsy, all that sort of stuff. He's just like, look, I like high school movies. I thought that's a fun genre. I haven't worked in that. They showed me the car. The car looked nice. It was a beautiful car. I thought I could do a lot with the car. And it's a rock and roll movie, and that was cool. Like, it was like three isolated elements. He was like, the story didn't really appeal to me in the way that Firestarter did. I didn't find some thematic depth in it. I just like, these are fun elements to play around with. Why not? The milieu, right, of the, right, I get to do a greaser movie with, like, a rock and roll soundtrack is definitely a big, big way for him to talk himself into it, right? Right. Like, he, he, he wants to do one of those. Yeah. And, and he also had the freedom to, like, cast all these great, like, old character actors that you can <sighs> tell he just wanted to work with. Like Robert Prosky. <laughs> Good old Bob Prosky. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Um, you mentioned Robert's Blossom. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's all over the the this guy named Stuart Charno, who's like, it was the a nerd that popped up in every eighties movie uh, at that uh, time. Wait, oh, who's he? Who does he play? Wait, Stuart Charno. Don Vandenberg him. is what IMDb. Oh yeah. Him. But if you look at his face, it's like, oh yeah, he's literally in every high school, you know, movie of that era. Well, there's also Steven, Steven Tash, who is one of like the bully kids with the, the real angular sideburns is the guy that Bill Murray fucks with at the beginning of Ghostbusters. I couldn't That's figure right. out why he looks so familiar, especially in the scenes where he's scared. But it's because he's the guy getting electrocuted when he guesses the wrong card. I never put that together. Yeah. Holy shit. Exactly. Yeah. Which, by the way, that's such a great fucking joke. You know, like, I know that this isn't about Ghostbusters, but that opening always cracks me up every single time I watch it. And it, the the cherry on top isn't that he's just like Bankman's being horny for the, the cute college girl. It's the fact that the other kid is actually showing psychic Right, prowess right, getting it right. right and he's totally ignoring it for you know uh for there's no date. reason for him to punish that guy no like they could both be right <laughs> mm -hmm. uh he's electrocuting the dude um yes uh, able to cast a lot of good actors um but, but i think you know 
the biggest change he makes that feels very Carpenter to me from the book, which I admittedly haven't read, is the car is just bad. The car is evil. <laughs> like, the car is like the shape, right? It is a manifestation of evil. It was always evil. It will always be evil. With King, he sort of, like, straddles the line between is the car itself the thing or is the car possessed by bad owners? Does it have the spirit or is it the thing that makes the people bad? And this is like, he adds this prologue, which apparently King didn't really like as much as he gave him freedom to do whatever he wanted and make those choices, where it's just like the second this car comes off the assembly line, it's killing people. You look at the poster for this movie and the tagline is huge letters. How do you kill something that can't possibly be alive? And then smaller font, massive block of text that says she was born bad plain and simple somewhere deep on a desert darkened assembly line christine like i just love that it's so good the whole poster is so good but i do love that idea where it's like you know once in a while there's just a car born bad like that that's just how it is that we don't need to explain this anymore it just wants to chomp you up you you guys get it you know you you buy a new car and it's evil and your wife chokes in it you know this happens all the time (laughs) it happens all the time but yeah, you're right. The whole marketing in this is great. The poster's great. The trailer, I don't know if you've seen the trailer recently, but it, the teaser for it no. is, it's just all these, like, I think it might be Percy Rodriguez or somebody like with a, a good early 80s trailer voice is talking about Christine, but as if she's a woman. And you're just seeing like curves, the her curves, and you don't realize it at the beginning. You think it's like a James Bond kind of, you know, you're seeing a woman's hip lying down or something. And it's the it ends up being the car. And, and oh, I'm watching this. This is hilarious. This is God. Imagine seeing this in a theater. Yeah, I have that trailer in 35. I, I sought that out. And bought oh, that yeah. 35 awesome. millimeter. yeah, it is. It's a great teaser. Um, the marketing's great uh, on this whole thing. And you can tell that they had a lot of good trailers, good stuff to market. I mean, I think the movie itself is is good. It's, it's yeah, good. It's solid. It's, it's a solid. It's movie. solid. It's solid. It's good. I don't think it's it's amazing. I don't think it's the best king. I don't think it's the best carpenter. I don't think it's even the best of that era. But, you know, they he, you see why this was very uh, attractive to him because uh, to carpenter because like look at how easy of a sell it was. You know, like it, as long as he didn't, you know, just turn in uh just unwatchable garbage, like he he had kind of a surefire hit there. It's also a hell of a lot better than the fucking Firestarter movie they made. That's true. That yeah, so I'm true. sure I'm sure that was satisfying. Well, Firestarter looks so cheap in comparison, uh, and maybe that's the reason why. Terminable. Yeah. Like I cannot stand watching that movie. Firestarter is uh, Mark Lester, correct? Who who is the director of um, Fuck? What's the terrible movie that he made that I know well? Now now I gotta look it up. I can't remember. Anyway, I do remember Firestarter being boring as shit. It's sort of like one of those classic where you're like. I'm in for a Stephen King movie, baby. Give me the thrills and and, and being yeah. kind of Yeah, and then there's by. like three minutes at the end where fireballs are destroying people and launching them into trees. And you're like, why isn't the rest of the movie like this? I found this uh, uh, Cobert's uh, quote, uh, the producer, because, uh, you know, like King's tendency is to mythologize things, right? And like this evil is the stem of a curse of a wrong done generations ago and it has seeped in and survived. You know, mm-hmm. it's sins of the past shit. And Carpenter just loves this idea that, like, some things are just bad. There are just actual pure forces of evil in this world. They are evil because that's what they were placed on this earth to do. And that is all they will ever do. Nothing traumatized them. You know, nothing went wrong. 
uh, it's evil going right. And Coberts was talking about them picking like right off the bat, the car's just bad. That's just what we're doing. The car's just bad. It's mm-hmm. always been bad. There's no backstory. And then he said uh, months later, after they made that decision, King mentioned a comic essay by James Thurber that he'd read about objects that had simply been born bad, like a can opener that was just meant to cut your finger. In a Mm -hmm. sense, that's what we're saying about this car. It's not the ghost of a dead owner. It's not a skeleton rattling in the backseat. It's just that this car has a way of adopting weak people, capturing their minds, and giving them a sense of security and a sense of power. In exchange, it rules the owner. Yeah. What about that movie, The Mangler? That's Stephen King, right? The the, the haunted laundry machine? Yeah. Right? That is. Wait, I'm sorry. Seen that? That's what that movie is about? Yeah, that literally folds you like laundry. Like, it, it, that's actually la- what it yeah. does. It, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not like a washing machine. It's like a, an industrial laundry. That, right, like yeah. a big washer. Yeah. It's like the length of, you know, a warehouse floor. And it looks like something, you know, Tim Burton designed when he was like particularly depressed or something. You know, it's all like rusted and got these like fanciful swirls on it and shit and, and gears and shit yeah. so he really would just pick a thing yeah the mangler is like so expanded from the source material though and that's that's just one of those movies that's like you could sit and talk about the mangler for a couple of hours no problem there's a lot to chew on in that movie and it'll be a very fun conversation but the, the process of actually watching uh fucking the mangler is real rough as we found out wow there's there's a mangler two and three mangler two yeah mangler 2.0 uh is like the the spirit of the mangler is somehow like uploaded into the computer system at this um like prep school that has been shut down for i don't know the holidays or some shit and there's some uh, students that are l- remaining on campus, I think because they're being punished for something. We uh, we haven't done that one yet, but I've watched <laughs> it. Um, and the, the Mangler Reborn, my buddy Scott Spicer is in from The Tick, which was meant to be a hard reboot of The Mangler only three years after Mangler 2.0. <laughs> they just wouldn't let The Mangler yeah. lie dormant. That, that Mangler franchise that all the public demanded. Yeah. Right. It's odd that they were so persistent on the Mangler. Well, you know, that's the kind of shit that like was just all over the shelves at Blockbuster and was probably getting, you know, sure. rented left and right. And, you know, there was enough to justify sort of like children of the corn. You know, if there's enough business in that ancillary market to um, to justify, keep making them and they're making them very cheap. You know, right. why it's not? It's like people, it's a name people recognize. And yeah. yeah. But I defy you to find someone who's watched all three Mangler movies. Like, that would be I, I don't crazy. think I've ever I, met one. The Mangler was one of those movies that like a kid in high school told me about. It was like I, the scariest fucking movie I ever saw was this movie called The Mangler about a, a fucking washing machine. And I that's why I watched it. And I, I just remember it being re- it's a Toby Hooper, right? Like late yeah. Toby yeah. Hooper. It's, it's got Robert England being, in it. it, it like, yeah. He's like a crazy ported. factory owner. Yeah. yeah. And like the whole thing is very like. It, it's it's hard to pinpoint the tone of it. It's it's really strange. Eric, what's the name of the fucking guy? Like the lead guy. We love this guy in the mangle. Uh, the detective. Oh, uh, Ted Levine. Ted Levine. Ted, Ted Levine. Levine. Oh, yeah, Ted, Ted Levine. Ted Levine's in it, and he's like the lead. And he is so it's like a rare lead performance from Ted Le- Levine, and he's just like one of his eyeballs is always bulging out, <laughs> and he's like wearing this bizarre jacket <laughs> through the whole goddamn thing. Even though it's he, like it's, he's in a Shane Black movie, like you, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
he, he he'd fit into kiss kiss bang bang kind of so that. he's in investigating this laundry press but meanwhile robert england is like the owner of the the laundry factory or whatever the fuck you would call it and sure yeah he's like running Any around laundry in like factory a, well <laughs> yeah laundry factory a, ben don't ask a, questions it's a factory okay, space sorry, and sorry. a laundry is inside of it so it counts and <laughs> okay he, but he's running cool. around in like a three-piece suit but he and with like a robot leg or some shit and like sexually harassing every woman in sight He's got like those Forrest Gump uh, leg braces on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so fucking weird. Again, this is this is good shit to talk about, but in practice, you. Mm, I don't know. Maybe rough. we should do the Mangler trilogy on Patreon. We might David. have to. Yeah. He, he, we he might have. To. Robert England delivers every line as if he's Yosemite Sam as well. Like it, oh. it is, <laughs> yes, it is. It is the most bonk, and he's got like a dead eye, like contact lens, and those nineties England performances where he's like, "Oh, I I know what people want from me, right?" You know, where he they, yeah. he doesn't need. Well, to how worry. come this doesn't work without without the Freddy makeup? Yeah, yep. Uh, Wishmaster. I'm trying to think of other Robert England uh, at that time. He's in Urban Legend, right? Of the opera he did that Phantom. Of the yeah. Opera did movie. did he direct that one? Yes, I think he did. The the fan of the opera one? Yeah. I, oh, yeah, he I, sure I did. So, he also yeah. directed a movie called Killer Pad. <laughs> I mean... Anyway. That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> sounds kind of fun, right? Yeah. He's in that movie. What is it? 10,000 Maniacs or right, something? Right, or, With the right. Eli Roth one, yeah. Yeah, and like he, uh, his character in that is sort of along the lines of the Mangler, but the, like more of, a, more of a Colonel Sanders type, whereas in you know, uh, the mangler, he's, he's just more put together, it, which is just really weird to see him in that outfit in the midst of this like dirty ass factory. That's, you know, the centerpiece of which is this, you know, house size laundry press. That's like literally folding people in half. If they get too close to it, it. folds <laughs> people like laundry. It, that's oh, yeah. what it does. It does straight up. Straight Again, up. this is the most fun shit to talk about. But when you, if you guys do watch that shit for your Patreon, uh, you are going to be in pain. Like <laughs> it is, it is real tough to get through. But it is super fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It it looks un it's unforgivably long. I, I mean, I haven't seen it, but it's <laughs> in a long time. But it's like a hundred and six minutes. Like, what are we doing here? That thing should be eighty minutes long. And Christine is Christine's kind of surprisingly long too for Car because Carpenter. Carpenter is such a 90 minute movie maker, right. like in the, in this like killer run he's on. And then this and Starman, they're a little, you know, they have a little more room to breathe. Like, I feel like Christine kind of doesn't get to the scares for a while. Like it's, it's a lot of, you know, scene setting and characterization and stuff like that. I just want to quickly correct. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, Robert Englund did not direct Phantom of the Opera, but I did in trying to confirm that find the poster for this movie, which is incredibly bizarre <laughs> because the poster for Phantom of the Opera is Freddy Krueger. And it says oh, Robert okay. Englund was Freddy. Now he's the Phantom of the Opera. And it's Freddy holding up a little Phantom of the Opera mask. What other instances are there of one character being used to promote an entirely different movie that that character does not appear in. This is more egregious than Stephen King appearing on the. This is wild. <laughs> this is yeah. like the most insane. Fall. This makes you think that Freddy Krueger is going to be haunting the opera. <laughs> right. It's like a Deadpool uh, promoting uh, free guy. Right? And then that's, yes, the tagline is an all new nightmare. Well, that's all they had to work with on that one, apparently. Illegal. I hope everyone went to jail who was involved in that. 
Christine. Uh, they, he gets this manuscript. Uh, Kobritz brings it to him. They write a script. They're like, great, you film in eight weeks. It comes out that year. It was also a very, very quick movie. What, like in terms of the shoot? Yes. Yeah, and just the entire development process. It was just like, uh, the book comes out while they're filming. Uh, it's blowing up the charts. The movie's in theaters like four or five months later. Um, Everyone trying to recapture that fucking box office gold from Carrie yeah, at that point, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he wants to cast... Kevin Bacon very badly, a thing that uh, repeats itself in Starman. Uh, Bacon auditioned for this. Uh, they were going to cast Arnie. him. Uh, correct. And then he gets offered Footloose and takes that instead. I don't buy him as a nerd. I could buy him as Dennis. I don't either. Yeah, he, he would have been a really good Dennis. And it's, it's a thing I like about Keith Gordon in this movie is he is actually a loser at the beginning of the film, not because, and and yet he pulls off the transformation to creep at the end. The thing that's impressive is the transformation, right? You're looking at, you're like, I don't think I can buy this. I'm going to be able to buy this guy's anything, but a dork. Those glasses really do a lot. A lot. (laughs) Yeah. This was the original. He's all that. Yes. Oh yeah, for sure. That leather vest though, is not a great look. (laughs) It's a terrible look. It's a terrible look. That's pretty rough. But I just feel like most often they will do the Kevin Bacon version of the casting where it is like the first 45 minutes, Kevin Bacon is slouching and using like Nasonex and he has the taped up glasses and you're not buying it. And then he becomes what you knew he always was meant to be. Whereas it's right. there's more tension to, as you said, David, you're watching the first half of this movie. You go like, well, this is just going to be embarrassing when this guy tries to act tough. It's going to be like Bully mm-hmm. McGuire and Spider-Man 3. And it, it really it works. It makes it's one of the more unnerving aspects of the movie. The fact that he actually does become so sociopathic and that he underplays yeah. it, you know? Well, it's because he's not trying to play cool. I think that's where a lot of instinct would be that, okay, yes, I'm now the cool guy, you know, because the, the whole thing's an allegory, you know, or you could read it as an allegory anyway of, you know, uh, this guy losing his virginity, right? And he's mm-hmm. becoming... The, a man and you know he's not going to be as nervous and as awkward because he's not nervous about all that stuff and he's found a woman you know the woman just happens to be a car um yep. he's horny for that car though he loves that car sure he's super, super horny far hornier car. than for his extremely attractive girlfriend yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah but yeah but like the fact that that the turn isn't into a cool greaser or whatever right it is it is a guy that is instantly creepy like he's got confidence and you can see how that that works out for him in certain ways but like it is a legit, like kind of disturbing performance. I wouldn't quite put it in the same category as Nicholson and The Shining. You know when he's doing like that dead eye stare, you know, out. But it's kind of in that same ballpark where it's like you, this guy, you wouldn't trust to be in. If he was in the same room with you, it's like being in the room with a loaded gun. I I agree, and I think uh, watching all these Carpenter movies so close together, it is a thing I noticed throughout his filmography he is really good at whether it's just that he's good at casting or he's good at guiding and shaping these performances but so many of his movies require a character to have like a fundamental change on sort of like a cellular level where it is whether it's you know they experience some sort of trauma or shock and they lose their their joie de vivre or they turn evil or whatever it is something like starman where he's learning how to be a person gradually these movies always have these transformations that have to be sold not through prosthetics, but by a shift in energy from the actor. And they're always done pretty 
specifically, but also in a, in a believable and understated uh, manner. It is also interesting that this is uh, Keith Gordon and uh, John Stockwell, both of who go on to become directors after this. Yeah, Keith Gordon. He didn't he make the singing detective remake or wait, what the the movie version of it? Yeah, yeah. Right. And what's what's it called? Waking the Dead. Is that the movie? Yeah, which is yeah. not a bad movie. I that I haven't seen it in twenty years, or but I remember that being like a pretty solid moody drama, right? Yeah, and, and uh, he like directs prestige television now. He does Homeland and Fargo, uh, Leftovers. Yeah, um, and then John Stockwell kind of went in the opposite direction. Uh, John Stockwell, who, you know, handsome guy, uh, did, what did he do? Uh, let's see. I'm taking a look. Well, he's also, well, he did Blue Crush. Right. right? And, and Crazy Beautiful. Fuck. And did he also do Into I the Blue? Crazy yeah, Beautiful. He did Blue Crush and Into the Blue black, back to back. That's, he shouldn't <laughs> have done Into the Blue. Into the Blue. That, into the blue <laughs> that, that was, that was, uh, you know. Uh, a hat on a hat or whatever. <laughs> God, Into the Blue is truly like these people look good in swimsuits. The movie, right? Yes, like that. Yes. Like that, I don't even know what the plot of that thing is. That's the full plot. Like, Alvin yeah, that is the Walker. Plot. They're yeah. not wearing a lot. Okay. Yeah. Josh Brolin's the villain. Uh, Josh Brolin sure is. Scott Conn's in that one. Apparently, yeah. who knew? Um, Blue Crush is the is the one with um, uh, Kate Bosworth, right? Correct. And Michelle Rodriguez. And then a third person on the poster who never made another movie again. I I uh, I have an interesting story about that because I met Kate Bosworth on the set of Rules of Attraction. Uh, I went to I was uh, on Rules of Attraction for two days uh, doing set visit for Ain't It Cool News, which uh, I was writing for at the time. And um, in it, back then she was just that was like one of her first things. And of course I remember just being struck by you know the different colored eyes and she was super sweet and. And all that. And then I saw her in Blue Crush and I wrote a review of it. And I think I like I don't remember what the review said. It's probably super cringy. If look at it now, because I was like, you know, 20 writing it. But uh, I wrote a review for it. And then I went to I was invited to the premiere of Rules of Attraction. And and I get like tackled by Kate Bosworth at the premiere. And she gives me a big kiss on the cheek and thanks me for my review of Blue Crush. So that is my Blue Crush anecdote. I don't remember anything about the movie, but it did get earn me a, a kiss on the cheek from Kate Bosworth. Both of you guys have read the Christine book, correct? Yes, sure. The book, there is like the a presence of the previous owner, right? The Robert yes. Blossom character's brother, Roland LeBay. Yeah, and in the in the movie, they essentially that scene is Roland's scene. In the movie, Roland sells the kid the car. It's not his brother. Got so, um, so essentially, Robert Blossom is playing Roland LeBay. He's playing the guy that dies um the his brother is in the book but he kind of he's a normal guy he comes in and essentially give is there to give um uh, arnie some backs or arnie and dennis some backstory on you know the history of the car mm-hmm. um so they i don't know why the decision was made to, because he is playing the creep old creep that owned the car it feels like they're just streamlining it and they're also you know nodding to the fact that christine is just born bad Versus the backstory of the book where it's a little more complicated than that. That's what I read was that, A, they wanted Christine to have, like, no backstory in that sort of sense. Uh, more just kind of set up the trail of bodies of other people right. she's, you know, taken. But, B, that um, they didn't want, I guess, this sort of, like, ghostly specter of the previous owner because they thought it was too similar to American Werewolf in London. That that was mm, a specific thing that. where they were trying to avoid the Griffin Dunn character of, like, Oh, and this past guy who didn't make it is haunting the kid. 
I don't mind the idea of the car just being bad. I love and, it. And I, I wanted to ask you guys this earlier. Like, do, do you care? Like, I know you haven't read the book, but like in, in general in a movie where it's like, if it just, it just is that way or it has a whole backstory, like, I don't need a whole fucking backstory no. on everything. I, you, know, you know, I, no, not at I all. think it's bad car. Yeah. It can, it can depend case by case, but like by and sure. large, I kind of prefer if you just go, look, you're seeing the bad car movie. You've already bought into the idea that this is a movie about a bad car. Why do we need to explain it? What are we going to gain from that? Or if it's as simple as Cujo, where it's like, well, the, it, it got bit by a bat. Don't worry about it. Right. You know, right. that's it. I, I just think, yeah, it, it's usually a waste of time and energy. And I, I do think there is more mythic power. Like, I got amped. I'd never seen this movie before. And I got amped at the realization of, oh, shit, they're starting with the factory line and she's already taken down people. You're like, right. I, ju yeah, I just, I was yeah, yeah. so gets all too. Right. And I was just like, great, great. This is exactly how Christine the Killer Car movie should start. I hope they never circle back and dig in deeper. And they don't. And I was very, very pleased. Well, I'm I, one thing that I'm curious about because George LeBay, um, as portrayed in this movie, like he wears the back brace. You made mention of the the mm -hmm. weird back brace he's he's wearing in the book. There's a reason for that because uh, he dies and then Arnie starts picking up his mannerisms. We have him in the movie where he calls starts calling people shitters and and all that, and and he starts you know almost being possessed not just by the car but by Roland LeBay himself, this old mm -hmm. creepy dude um and by the end of it arnie is wearing that back brace that he's hurt himself during oh you know, the process and and so he's like he's just more physically transforming into into this you know old crotchety bastard you could see him in some alternate universe you, you know if he had uh, survived the story some alternate universe of him like selling christine to the next kid you know of being that guy i like the the thing that coblet said of just like the idea is that the car can identify weak, insecure people, right. you know, and, and then becomes this corrupting force rather than it being about the legacy of one guy. And I also like that, like, it, once again, unexplained, but you can extrapolate from the Blossom thing and the level of contempt he had for this car and trying to get his brother to quit it and watching his, like, daughter and uh, his niece and his... uh sister-in-law both die at the hand of this thing that he at some point got injured in the car you know yeah, yeah like yeah. himself that this is you know he fucking tried in vain and he made it out alive but he, the car still got something out of him um i i just I, I i don't know i prefer it not being about any one person and that's a thing i like a lot about um having the prologue on the factory line you know is just yeah. like, even if we're mostly going to be haunted by the most recent previous owner, we also recognize, as David said, you take two guys out in the very beginning of the movie. And, and creatively, creative kills. I, I like both kills. Yes. But in both cases, you just go like, okay, she's just like a homing beacon, you know? Right. Yeah, I think that the, you're, you're right. I buy that. And I also think that there is a, a, an element to the book where the book gets really creepy is with the ghost of Roland stuff, but you, you don't really need that for the, the movie so much, but there is a moment towards the end that I really wish was in the movie. And it would have still spoke to this where the car, uh, picks off, um, uh, Arnie's dad, like it, it she essentially tent the car attempts 
Arnie's dad into the car and kills him. And then during the whole finale where she's, you know, uh, trying to run down, you know, Dennis and and uh, uh, the girlfriend. I'm sorry for blanking on on uh, Lee. Lee's her name. And she like that during that whole section, the car is trying to kill these guys in the uh, in the movie. It's Arnie is is there driving in the book. Arnie is not there. The, 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 the matter of fact, they set up this whole thing to kill the car while Arnie's out of town because they're trying to save their friend. And uh, but there is somebody in the car and that somebody is the fucking rotting corpse of his father who is dead in that car. And, and uh, there becomes a certain moment and it reminds me a little bit of Anaconda. But there comes a certain moment where during the fight, it just regurgitates. It spits out the body of the, wow. of the father. And it is the most like fucking out of left field, gross thing. And it, the way it affects the characters, I was just like, man, I would love to see that. Maybe Brian Fuller will will uh, do that part when he does the uh, the adaptation. Right. It's Fuller. Fuller's doing it for Blum now, right? In theory. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, it's Sony. It's Sony. But oh, yeah, but, okay. Blum, but I think Blum's producing. I think Blum something. is producing it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. He'll do a Sony thing once in a while. That, but is that actually happening? Because like Brian Fuller, no offense uh, either, to the guy. Sure. He just often is attached to things that never take off. It, it was announced only in June. So it's a pretty fresh okay, thing. So it's recent. It's yes. recent. Okay. That's he's, cool. a, he's a friend of our show and he kind of kept us up to date on that. He um, Last I heard... Uh, he's working on it and, or I think, I think right now he's done with it and waiting, you know, to, uh, to hear what happens next. Um, but I do know that he, he told us that he, um, he got the personal go ahead from King to do it, that King had, you know, held off on, uh, signing off on any further Christine stuff since, since Carpenter did that one. It's interesting. Do you think that's because King thinks this movie is good or why? Why? I wonder why. Like, because I know Stephen King can be a little changeable on his opinions on adaptations. You know what? If I had to guess, if I had to guess, I'd say Stephen King's a big Hannibal fan. That's probably true. That makes sense. Yeah. And knows Fuller uh, just from from that. And I don't know, maybe here, you know, we had a big episode with Fuller where he came on and, and you know, basically deconstructed Christine through the lens of being a trans allegory. And and that uh, it's really interesting. Every time he's on the show, it's like he's coming at these things from an angle you would never expect. And it's just it's really fantastic to listen to how that guy's brain works. You know, I don't always understand what he's saying, <laughs> but. But I, you know, it's fascinating to listen to. And, you know, um, you listen to that stuff and you understand why Brian Fuller gets every job that he wants, whether or not it comes to fruition. Like that guy could go into a room and sell anybody anything. Sure. He could talk you into eating your own hand like no problem. Yeah. It's like he, he his enthusiasm is infectious. His his point of view is always very smart and educated and deeper than you'd imagine it being so. If it does happen, then I think it it could be something special. I don't know, you know, anything could happen. You know, the all, you, we're in a, an industry where where you know all the surefire hits can still die on the vine if the right or the wrong person is at the wrong spot in the wrong time. So, and I do think if he does it, it will be the it will be more faithful to the source material. So you're gonna you're gonna get 
it's not going to just be it's a bad car. You're going to get the the, the the ghost dad, right? Yeah, right. And, right, and right. in that case, I, you know, I'm fine with that. I, I'd love to see that two versions of this exist, and you know, we get that version of it, and it it makes sense if that's the version of the movie he's making. That's just not the version of Christine that Carpenter was interested in making. I don't think. I got this quote that our researcher dug up that I love from. Uh, like 2014, not from that long ago, where they asked Carpenter, like, does Stephen King like the movie? And he said, I don't know. Stephen King loves everything. Then he hates it. He's a weird ass guy. Yeah. Just weird. Started out, started out as a teacher. What the hell do you want? I don't know what that last part means, <laughs> but I like that he said it. I loved crotchety John Carpenter. It's the best. And I do think, you know, King often will turn on adaptations of his work, but I don't, I have no sense of what he thinks of this movie. He probably values that it's a John Carpenter movie. I mean, that's, you know, it's a obviously major person. The impression I've gotten just just talking to Fuller about it is that he, he holds it in pretty high regard. Um, but I, I could be reading too much into, you know, the, the anecdotes that he's shared. So I don't know. It, it sounds like he's maybe flipped on and off with it. Uh, I, I found some quote somewhere about where he was. Carpenter was talking about that. Uh, uh, King was upset that they had changed a lot of the deaths and how they played out. Right. Obviously, like the prologue stuff is invented, but then once you get into the main body of the film and Carpenter's response was like, yeah, well, like one of the bullies in the book, it's like he chases him down and he runs over him. And then it just says in the book that he like turned into a puddle of grease. And I was like, that's not very cinematic. I'll have him like catch on fire and like run over the guy like. He was like thinking visually about stuff, which I think King can sometimes I, I feel be very literal minded in his adaptations. And he goes back and forth on whether like uh, it, w what, what is a necessary reinvention for the medium versus when he's like, well, why didn't they just do it the way I wrote it? I wrote it this way. The Shining being the prime example. And Lisi and Lisi's story being another recent example, because that is like, you know, straight up the book. He wrote every right. episode of it. And I like that to begin with and then the tone of it just started wearing me down where it was like so depressing and so just grim you know watching julianne moore's character you know just get fucking dogpiled by life and this in you know dane dehan no one wants to see anyone get dogpiled by dane <laughs> and you know like and and eventually the the tone of that one wore me down and i i didn't finish it it, it was on a technical level it was like um beautifully made and other than saying maybe clive owen with a little one note in that role like julian moore was great in it dahan uh despite being he's just a, a very slappable looking guy you know um but, <laughs> he but uh, it works for that character yeah it works for the character and he like brings a weird kind of menace to it that's interesting that i hadn't seen him do before um where it's less reliant on like ticks and and shit like that and it's it's more uh steady staring and like you know holding a gaze and 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 kind of physically imposing a little keith gordon creepiness pulled late christine keith gordon creepiness yeah but again the tone which would i would i would argue matches the tone of the book it just wasn't a thing i wanted to watch an hour of every week and it's it's this is a, a you know going back to what you were saying griffin about you know the, the necessities in in the art of adaptation and making something cinematic right um it doesn't just because it was great on the page does not mean that it's going to be great, you know, filmed. Right. Yeah. And I, I, you know, Carpenter is, is just a very cinematically minded person. And I think for him, you know, like 
Fuller doing a more drawn out version of this, digging into all the mythology, makes sense for what he does well as a writer. And for Carpenter, it makes so much more sense to get to the meat and potatoes version of this and just deal with it. And I like the fact that he's turning it into also a little bit more of a like uh, meek shall inherit thing. You know, it speaks to like, here's this guy who is so put upon at the beginning of this film, right? Like he's got this one friend, but otherwise like people are fucking stabbing his yogurt, you know, (laughs) his parents keep on giving him the business and he just sort of takes it all in the chin. Like he's like kind of infuriatingly refuses to stand up for himself. And I say this as a deeply beta person. You're looking at this guy and going like, come on, like push back a little bit, have a little more respect. Yeah. You want to just wedgie the shit out of him. Right. Right. Like, and he's one of those guys who is just a target because you're just like, come on, dude. Like, give me some like reason. like a walking swirling, basically. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah for and sure. And the second he gets lured into Christine, it's like he has such a power trip, you know? It's not that he becomes cool. It's that he becomes this very dark asshole because he now has sort of the confidence he last lacked before and that immediately uh, sort of curdles and turns into something that he points at other people. Like, even the scenes where it does not feel like he's directly being controlled by Christine it is clear that he just kind of loves now being able to be a creep, you know? Yeah. And not give a shit and everything. You know, and I also like that in so many ways, Christine really feels like she is the main character of this thing, especially because it will jump between the the three young leads, Arnie and Dennis and Lee. But, you know, for long stretches, you might not see one of them. And a lot of the transformation that Arnie goes through happens like in between scenes, you know, mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you're not seeing a gradual step by step. You're not watching every scene. He comes into his power a little bit more. There'll just sort of be a jump. And then everyone goes like, whoa, Arnie, what happened to you? You know, and, and as you also watch Stockwell, like mellow out more and Lee's concern increase. It's I, I like the way it all plays out. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, this this is a story about addiction. Yeah. So this is, you know, you you could uh, make the case very easily that Christine's drugs, you know, a drug, Mm -hmm. (laughs) drugs and crime and all that stuff. And that's why the parents are so adamant that he stays away from it. But the more they demand he stay away from it, the more appealing it is for him to to, to do. And, And it also for him, it represents freedom, you know, independence that he doesn't have. Um, it, and all that stuff is, is just so rich stuff to, to mine that it can like live in the subtext. And I think that's why there are moments in the movie that really do like strike you. Like uh, the, the, the show I keep mentioning, but the show me moment is like my favorite moment in the movie. Cause it, cause that is the, the moment that like he just fully embraces, um, you know, being his in horniness control. for the car, his yeah. horniness right. for the car, but being in control. Right of of his life and and you know he makes a, a demand essentially instead of uh he, he's not passive you know he's he's actually stepping up and not blinking in the face of this unbelievable thing you know? also that he is fully accepted that the car is magical at that point like up right. until that scene people talk about the car like i don't know this is gonna sound crazy but it's almost like the car has a mind of its own And then, like, here's a scene where he stands in front of a car and issues a command and the car does the thing and he's not surprised at all, you know? 
Yeah. Well, he's under it. I mean, he's so in its sway by that point. Right, right. But he you also... Know, why wouldn't he? Right, right. Um, that, that scene is also just on a technical level. It's like, you know they're just playing footage in reverse, but it still feels like such a fucking magical special effect. For real. Right. It's For stunning real. to watch the car inflate. It's just like, it's still unreal imagery. It's real movie magic. And that's something that like, I really hope Brian, when he atta- attacks his version of it, doesn't forget because the one thing you don't want is for Christine to turn into Transformers. You yes. know, well, that's the thing. If you, if you overdo it, like then it won't, the whole, the simplicity of it is what makes it work so well here. I mean, it's, there's a reason why when you like watch the Lord of the Rings, like the most impressive shit is how they use force perspective and in camera tricks right. and stuff, you know, and it, and it, it, it just, it, that works so much better than, you know, it, pumping people in and, and all that stuff, which they had to do in the Hobbits and stuff. And it's like, even that, like the amount of compositing that does exist in Lord of the Rings is largely compositing actors into models. Yeah, real elements. Yeah. You know, they were filming two real elements separately and putting them together. Um, yep. I mean, this car just fucking looks incredible, which Carpenter obviously said was one of the things that got him on board was like, oh, this is the model. This looks great. I can shoot the shit out of this thing. Like, it looks yeah. so fucking cinematic, and they bought 14 of them and just, like, buffed them all up. And, and set it's, them on fire. Right. So it's like, A, <laughs> the, the level of destruction they do to the car is so severe. I mean, there's the scene where he's chasing the guy, and the guy runs down the alleyway, and the alleyway is too narrow, yeah, and Christine yeah, starts crushing it. herself. Right. Yeah, and you're just like, the, the fact that you're seeing that actual sort of slow destruction of the car over and over and over again and then able to see it magically come back to life. And just, you know, the reflective quality of, like, a really nice vintage sports car from a director who knows how to light stuff really well. You would have to be, you would have to be trying to make that car look bad. You know, it's so right. stunning. I just don't know if... There are other things you can do with this material on a story level, but I question if you lose a lot of power the second you put one iota of CGI onto that car. Or make it a Tesla. Sure, sure. Well, <laughs> the scariest Make it the, cy- the Cybertruck. Yeah, yeah the, the, the weird Cybertruck. <laughs> the Cybertruck. <laughs> they do, they do uh, run over people without somebody driving. So they're... Right, right exactly. Yes, yes. Perfect update. Cars just looked very good. Like, I wish I knew more about vintage cars, which I truly do not, because I see this car and I'm like, this isn't a, you know, unbelievable looking machine. But also you see a lot of cars from the late 50s and you're like, this thing looks like did all the cars that everyone was driving around looked unbelievable. Someone explain this to me. Yeah, I only know one thing about vintage cars. Triples is best. <laughs> That's all I know. Triples is good. Triples is best. It's it's just a re- it's so good looking. Look yeah, at this. Yes, it looks- I know if you got in like one accident in this thing, the car would just actually kill you. I mean, like you know, not even a haunted car, but if you if your body just like hit the dashboard, it would basically just not, impale non-safety you. Safety glass, everything, the whole thing weighs like <laughs> right, five thousand right. pounds. You're gonna get stabbed by the hood somehow. Yeah. I'm like very much not a car guy. And I feel like when cars jump out to me in movies, they usually are very much movie cars and do not look like anything that would ever be driven in the real world. Right. Like concept cars. Right. 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 Like goofball banana concept. Like I like the Homer, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, that's an elegant, classy car. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. You like that one? Yeah. Right. Just simple, (laughs) clean. 
But like, this is an example of me seeing a real world classic car in a movie and going like, holy shit, that's the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. And my virtual background is like a little like Hot Wheels style set with tiny Keith Gordon and John Stockwell figures. But I was like Googling while watching this movie, like what is the best like Hot Wheels scale die cast Christine I could get? Like, I'm just like, I want a fucking Christine on my desk. What's out there? There's there's a good variety. I mean, Hot Wheels themselves had it at one point, and there are two other companies that have had it. They're larger scale ones, but they also throughout the years have produced them in the like junked up for sale version and then the classic shiny version and the evil version while the the windows are blacked out. You can find them pretty cheap. I think the one I want, there's one that comes with a little diorama of the Protsky garage. No Protsky, but that feels, it'll make me think of Robert. I saw just like on Twitter just a couple of weeks ago, somebody had made made one of like exactly what you're talking about. It was like it's a cube and around the car was the garage and the car is sitting in the center of it. But it was it was gorgeous. This little fucking thing this guy had put together. I was like, God, I would love to have that. Just I'm not even a big Christine fan and I would love to have that. It's just just a good looking thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's bewitching us, guys. It's, this car wants this to run us over. We have to be I, careful. I say we do whatever Christine tells us to do. It's going to play an ironic song, <laughs> and then it's going to get yeah, us. Yeah, the, the proto-bumblebee, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm wearing a back brace right now. So, yeah, <laughs> so I'm well on my way. The the Robert Bl- Robert's Blossom scene, just like a great version of the Friday the 13th, like it, guy at the gas yeah, station. Don't go in like, there. Oh, right. You don't C- want to go down Ralph. that road. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. Crazy Ralph. I also, I love that the car looks so bad. Like it, it's, it's truly. It's so bad. Right. It's so bad. Because you expect that it's like, well, of course the kids, I'm watching the movie for the first time. I'm like, how is he going to fall in love with this evil car? Because the car looks so nice, right? Then you have this massive chime jump. I'm like, Oh, the eerie thing is that the car is still going to be in pristine condition. No, it looks worse than any car has ever looked, and it's overpriced. Like, it's not even like, oh, he wins the car. He doesn't want it. But it is that siren song thing of, like, stop the car, back up. I need to go see this thing. And everyone else around him is like, what are you talking about? What are you doing? Yeah. Right, but it's preying on the vulnerability of this guy knowing that he could be corrupted. Yeah. I also... This is this movie is right around. I mean, Happy Days is still kind of on top, right? Like, yes. Is that is, are we still talking? Like, are we still into Happy Days in '83, or is it kind of uncool at this point? It's jumped the shark. It's still on the air, yeah. but it, it has officially jumped the shark. I don't know, just like because this, this movie is kind of. I know it's not set in the '50s, but it's sort of got that sort of interesting repudiation of the whole kind of, you know, hyper masculine greaser thing, like. It's kind of the nasty, you know, side of that. Well, yeah. the bullies are very much greaser inspired, even in a modern but day. But they're yeah. like crude and like awful. Yeah. Like they're just like nasty. They poop on the car. And, and, and almost to the person like 35 years old. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. 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 And yeah. also I'm like, wait, are we in high school yeah. here? Or are we in like, you know, industrial college? Yeah. Like, what is this? Like, yeah. especially this the guy tra- playing yeah. Buddy Repperton is just like that. They pulled that guy out of a gold's gym, you know, and <laughs> William Ostrander. Uh, it is incredible how old he looks. Uh, I mean, it, it, the movie takes this shift in the last hour where it becomes like Harry Dean Stanton is the fourth lead. And now, you know, you got this American psycho style, like cat and mouse, you know, on the trail. He's convinced that Keith Gordon's wrong. But I do like the angle of like, 
Keith Gordon is not there for most of this, right? Like he knows the car is mm-hmm. evil and he knows that the car has corrupted him. But when Heron Dean Stanton is asking about these things, he's not covering up for specific incidents because even though he hates these fucking guys and at this point he's purely happy that they're dead, he also like doesn't know that this happened necessarily. Right, he has a real alibi. The car is actually doing the murder. I wasn't <laughs> like, there. Right, and there's that... <laughs> like, when Harry Dean Stanton's sniffing around, it's not like Harry Dean Stanton's like, you know, I just got a hunch that this car is unilaterally committing crime. But I, I just, I love that turn because, like, when he's complaining about the guys fucking with him, and I think it's when he's yelling at his parents about the car being destroyed before the show me scene, and he, like, he, he's, like, crying about the fact that they shit on the hood, Right. Yeah, like it's just like the 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 indignity of it. These people, right? The, the final straw. Right, they have no humanity. This is not something you brush off, right? And then, like, he's gotten his revenge. The car has gotten its revenge. He's now acting more low key about everything. He's fucking started big dogging his parents. Like he doesn't give a shit anymore. Harry Dean mm-hmm. Stanton comes sniffing around, and he's like, "You know what's interesting? Your girlfriend came to me, said you were really upset about uh this these guys attacking your car." Uh, you know, you're really proud of this restoration job you did. There's one in a million job where you're able to replace every part without any color differentiation <laughs> in like under a week. It's weird. People usually report these kinds of things to the police and show photos. And he's like, ah, I don't know. It wasn't a big deal. I can forgive those guys. And there's just that really cutting line delivery where Harry Dean Stanton looks at him and goes like, they defecated on the hood of your car. <laughs> like the guy's gotten over it. And Harry Dean Stanton is trying to remind him, like, they really disrespected you. <laughs> that there was poo-poo on your hood. A guy named Moochie did doo-doos on your car. <laughs> this is not something a man forgives. I, I really love this is what this is a year before Repo Man. I love Harry Dean Stanton just playing a pretty normal guy. Yes. Uh-huh. Like when he shows up in a movie and you're like, oh, what sinister sort of like or odd or kind of quirky thing is about to happen. It's like he's kind of just a detective on the case in this one. <laughs> At the end, he's just kind of like, good job getting rid of the car, guys. Yeah. That thing was bad. So speaking of, we should probably like talk about the button on this movie as well. That that whole uh, is the car still alive, even though it's crushed into a block uh, thing. Yeah. Well, this, the whole final standoff is great between Christine and the forklift. Yes. Because you do, you do get to a point, I, I think, which is necessary for movies like this, building an actual sense of dread of how could you possibly stop this thing? Is there any right. way to destroy it? Right. Uh, and the forklift is just like, OK, I guess the approach is relentlessness. Just attack it from every angle nonstop until it stops moving. Don't let it recharge. Right, Right. right. Exactly. Don't give it room to reinflate. And then you have the hard cut to the block. Now it's in the perfect, compact, Wally trash block. (laughs) Right. Uh, and then they give that that great fake out where the the, the oldies start playing. And they're like, oh my God, the guy walks by with a boombox or whatever. That is so cheesy. But I, I, I gotta admit, I fucking love it. I mean, is I hate rock and roll the last proper line of dialogue in the movie? I think so. And then there's the um, it like holds on the thing. And then like it, one of the little metal pieces like plings out. Right. That's the the final shot yes. of the movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Christine's coming back, baby. Not to spoil, but in the book, 
Christine is 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 sort of maybe still alive, right? Like he like hears yeah. about a car accident. And he's like, could that be Christine? Right? Yeah. The people that survived the story kind of scatter, and you know, and then he like I think but it's the, a different there's car. like the one dude, and it, right? Um, yeah, I think it is. I think it's is it? I th- I I think that the Christine car itself in the book is like dead. But like whatever evil spirit is now maybe going into other other cars transferred. Right. Right. I thought the car that like blows through the wall of the fucking drive in and takes out the guy. I thought that like matched the description of Christine, but I could be misremembering. That wasn't my impression, but that doesn't mean that uh, that I read it in (laughs) in any great detail and retain that. So you might be right. Uh, I just read here because I was digging into this that when they do the the show me sequence, that was a car they had partially destroyed and then um, replaced most of the metal shell with a softer plastic. And then they had hydraulic pumps inside sucking it in so that it was able to sort of compress and retract more cleanly than metal, obviously, which right. would like... Without leaving like dents and stuff. Right, shatter and everything. Yeah, and then it's obviously played backwards. Uh, 15% of the budget was just the cars. Yeah, no shit. That is funny, though. They really shelled out on these cars. My God. It's the star. That's their Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, you got to get that right. This and Blues Brothers 2000 have the biggest, you know, car budgets. <sighs> that is what a waste. <laughs> uh, no shit. I, what a waste in general. Yeah, it, it just all around for everything. Um, they only uh, only two cars remained intact at the end of the movie, which uh, Columbia uh, requested so that they could um, use them for promotional stuff, mm-hmm. uh, send right. them around and, and things like that. And then immediately, immediately destroyed them while transporting them by crashing. Them so then the I went, I, I was looking for stuff on IMDb, right? And I searched for Christine and I mostly get results of actresses with uh, Christine as their first name. Of course, of course. A weirdly ungoogleable movie. Yes, is, is it's a problem. Yes. Uh, Christine Taylor uh, messing up uh, search uh, optimization. Uh, but uh, one of the top results is Christine Movie Car, which has its own credit on IMDb as an actress. No shit. As it's alive. Born October 31st, 1957. So I went, oh, this is kind of cool. Someone took the car in the movie and, and gave it a performer page. No. Christine movie car has zero credits. This is not the car that was in the movie. This is a fan built car that someone put on (laughs) IMDb listed as an actress. Bill Gibson's Christine movie car is the most expansive, immersive Christine experience traveling today. Now with over a decade of thrilling fans under her wheels. Yeah, we need to get the uh, Christine car and the Green Goblin truck from Maximum Overdrive together, I think. We need to bring him. Get him on the show. Yeah. Interview the cars. It's just lots of brooms. There's events. They'll drive it to you, maybe. Do you think you can, like, book? Like, it's like a children's birthday party. Like, you can book the movie yep. the car. Yes, but I just want to circle back to a key point. This car is not an actor. This <laughs> yeah. car has never been in a know, movie. Griffin. The car in Christine <laughs> is an actor. She gives a very good performance in the movie. Technically, it's 14 actors, but all of them are good. This car has never been in anything. This car just goes to fucking birthday parties. You go fucking around on IMDb, son, and you're going to find all kinds of weird shit people have done. <laughs> Incredibly bizarre. Look at, look at the trivia section on literally any movie on IMDb, and you will see, like, the most useless fucking knowledge you've ever seen. Like, just plastered. 80,000 people found it helpful or some shit. I am looking 
at the slideshows on the Christine, the, the movie car website. And they're here, here, here she is at the Playboy Mansion. My favorite thing though, is that like the pictures say like, you know, Stu, Bill and me dot JPG, me being the car the car. So the car is like <laughs> as if the car has uploaded these photos herself like from her digital camera like when somebody sets up like a, a an account for their dog on twitter or something. <laughs> yes exactly i just loved going to colorado this weekend let me ask you this like I, I, when i was first thinking about uh you know this traveling living car who is an actor that was not actually in christine mm-hmm. i'm thinking like you know, thrilling fans. Like, what is it doing? It's just sitting there, surely, in a showroom. Right. Floor. I don't think people get to drive it. I can't imagine they do unless they right. pay extra. But if if you had the opportunity, like, if you knew within a twenty minute drive or something, you could go like take a picture with a fifty eight Plymouth Fury. You know, I think I might do that. I'd like to see yeah. one. Of those. I've never seen one in person, so I don't know if I would be thrilled by it per se. But I I would. I would spend a couple hours doing that. I think that, I would go know? to yeah. a movie car show. I think if there was specifically oh, a car cool. show that was yeah, like, yeah. here are like 10 fan-made recreations. They don't even have to be the original screen used, right? But if it was like, here's the Ecto-1 and the V8 Interceptor and Christine, and I, I get to see all of that. I would make the trip for several. I just also want to quickly refute something you said, Scott, that uh, IMDb trivia is filled with useless information that no one finds interesting. Uh, if not for IMDb, I would not have known that Quote, Keith Gordon was nervous about kissing Alexandra Paul, so he asked her to practice first. And 81 out of 86 people find that interesting. That's the oldest <laughs> trick in the book, Keith. Jesus yeah. Christ. We've all heard about that one. Very nervous. Just yeah. as an actor. Did it, is there no follow-up there? Is there? Did she say yes? No further information. I don't know. He, I just know that he asked. Weird, weirdly, Robert Prosky had tried the same thing. With, yep. with her. <laughs> hey, but he said Keith. Hey, Keith's really worried about <laughs> kissing you, but uh, you know, he said I could give it a I shot. I want to make sure you're ready. Yeah, from my, yeah, he told me to report yeah, back from my boy Keith. Uh, yeah. no, we're, we're, we're slandering Robert Prosky here, of course, a, a hero of community. <laughs> Absolutely, that was the one time he didn't have lemon face on on that set. The the only other interesting thing here on the IMDb trivia is that um the the it, the movie was not violent enough to get an r but because there was no pg-13 at this time they were very worried about being caught in pg territory because especially with a premise as potentially goofy as kid with a, an evil car they thought it would get written off so they put a couple of fucks in there just to get the r rating yeah because it's not a gory movie at all really it's not yeah it's the scares are not too intense in christine no it's it's really more just fun it's unnerving it's fun... and it's fun yeah yeah but like it's walking that goofy line especially with the radio you know the radio gags always going i mean uh e- ebert put it perfectly his review he gave it three out of four stars and his review was by the end of the movie christine has developed such a formidable personality that we are actually taking sides during its duel with a bulldozer this is the kind of movie <laughs> where you walk out with a silly grin get in your car and lay rubber halfway down the Eisenhower. Yeah. I kind of agree with that. You're kind of on Christine's side. Yeah. 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 She's just so beautiful, (laughs) you know? So you're just, and also like, I guess so many of the bad guys she's taken out are, are such dickheads that you, you know, some collateral damage, of course. And we have to forgive Christine for that, but we can because she's pretty. And also because, you know, 
Yeah, he's killing all those other dudes. The, the lead choking on a hamburger scene's really good. Uh just to to go backwards. But I, I just think that's the movie, the moment where I think the movie is playing with the most sort of like interesting supernatural vibes. Because it's it's not the violence inflicted by the car. It's this weird level of control of like her body. Right. It's locking him out. It's turning the lights on, blaring the music just for spite. And then somehow it's able to make her choke. It is su- such a great um, m- uh, moment for her as a character, Christine as a character. Like the, so much of the success of this movie. And, and, you know, and I'm still saying this as somebody, you know, who thinks it's a, it's pretty good. You know, not not all timer, but one of the great successes is the personality that Carpenter is able to give that car. Yes. You you feel the vengefulness, the vindictiveness, the jealousy of an inanimate object, which is, you know, kind of bad shit to hear me actually say that and hear those words coming out of my no, mouth. But, but, but I, watching the movie, there were multiple moments where I, I could feel myself projecting facial expressions onto Christine, like going like Christine totally. looks angry, you know? And it's like I'm adding like fucking Pixar car eyes to it or whatever. But it is just a he knows how to shoot it and b that he's developed the story beats of it enough that you actually do start sensing intent. Yeah. Well, and so like you said, it, it really is. I think the most of it is 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 in how Carpenter shoots it. It's the angles he's picking. It's the editing choices he's making in those moments where in the Lee choking scene, it becomes frantic, it becomes a fight scene. Yeah, you know it is it right. Is, he starts uh, shit with the guy trying to do the Heimlich on her. Like, yeah, right. So like he's possessed. The car is evil. This guy's a, a good Samaritan. Leah somehow lost control of her autonomy. Like, there's so many things going on at once, and it's all underscored by uh, classic rock music. I mean, that's another thing this movie has in its favor. Is just I will always find bad to the bone funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah impossible to take that song yeah, seriously but this is the exact correct use of it you know absolutely and i isn't that what they kind of like sold uh carpenter on the whole idea with was with that song because that song is um well let's see let played me, twice let yeah yeah that song yeah but that song is is new right sure. like at yeah. the time right yeah you know, that's like, and, and here, wait, there's, let me, I think we found it. I think it's in the um, dossier. Their somewhere. pitch to Carpenter was, we have the rights to bad for the bum. Right. <laughs> Bill Phillips uh, basically was like, like, I just found this song and he sang it. He did the bad and they were like, yeah, that sounds good. And they bought the song. The, that, that was what that it is. He, he sang, they sang the, the, the sort of the, the, the chorus to them and they were like, perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Um, but then, but the yeah, the Carpenter score is really good, though. I like the Carpenter score. I mean, unsurprising with 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 uh, Alan Haworth, obviously. But also, I mean, it's nestled in between two movies that he famously didn't score. Mm. Yeah, with with really different, you know, with with of course, Starman and uh, uh, fuck the thing, you know, have these wonderful scores. But they're well, the thing is, I guess, a little more Carpentry. It's more moody, but uh, but the Starman score is so expansive, yeah. which I love. Yeah, that's definitely Morricone doing. Yeah, doing Carpenter. <laughs> but, but it's this more it's doing. more orchestral, and then the Starman score is a lot more emotional than he usually goes. Right, right. Let's talk box office. This movie. When did this movie come out, Griffin? This movie came out. Do you know? No, November, December. 9th 1983 christmas movie of course of course yeah that's the thing it's not exactly where i'd be i would either put this in the summer or you know in halloween like yeah, i put september the summer, totally. i could almost it's a summer movie i think yeah because 
exactly. It's got the back to school thing going on. It's got it's got a lot of you know. It's not actually that dark a movie no. in in like you know aesthetically. But whatever they put, they chunked it out in Christmas against two big movies. So it's opening number four uh, to three million dollars, and it's making how much total? It's making twenty one domestic. Uh, like ironically, kind of made the things final total, right, right? right? Like, what did the thing end up with? You know, as much as like the thing was a huge bomb for him, and this was kind of a recovery. Like another thing made thirteen. I guess that was pretty yeah. bad. Okay. Do you have it in front of you what it opened against? Oh, yeah. It, uh, we're about to play the box office game, my friends. All right. So number one of the box office griff is, okay, and this is one of those things where I always have to look this movie up because I don't remember. It's, it's, in, it's the fourth in a series of popular films. Okay. But the fact that you have to look up that it's fourth tells me there are no numbers. It's the yes. fourth. This is the movie that has the second most famous catchphrase of this character. And everyone always remembers that it's like, thinks that it's in the first movie, but it's actually in the fourth. It's, movie. So it's Dirty Harry. It's right. And this is the movie that's directed by Clint Eastwood. But what's it called? The Enforcer? I no. always get this wrong. Is it Magnum exactly. Force? Exactly. That's why I always like this one. Nope. That's the second one. You now named the third and second Dirty okay. Harry. Okay. And then Deadpool's the last one. It's not the Deadpool. So now you are you are out of you only sudden have one impact. <laughs> it's sudden impact. This is the movie where he says, "Go ahead, make my yeah. day." Um, it's the yeah, it's the one Clint made. I've never seen Sudden Impact. It's actually sort of on my watch list. Yeah. What do you guys do? You guys have Dirty Harry takes. Do you guys do care not. about Dirty Harry? I've seen the first. I've seen the first one, and I've in like a like a little chunk of the Deadpool. But um, yeah, that's about the extent of my knowledge on that. I, I watched the later ones a lot as a kid because they were always on um, HBO, right? Um, so I probably have seen the fourth one. The uh, Deadpool is the one with like Sandra Locke in it, right? Like there, there's. I uh, know this is the one with this, okay. Then I've yeah. probably the seen this one, yeah, th- this yeah, one yeah. the most. Yeah, yeah. And there's like a shootout, like on a boardwalk or like an amusement park boardwalk or something. Like, yes, the, like there's a carousel scene. I think a big carousel right. set piece. Yeah, yeah. So now yeah, is this one then that I, I must have watched over and over again. I really like the first one because of the just we're gonna take the Zodiac, you know, or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and make that the, the first bad one's guy. good. They're all pretty good. Yeah, it's like I, I do remember really liking that. Yeah, they're they're like. Good, stupid movies. It, it is wild that the first one's a Zodiac movie and they were like, huh, what if this is a franchise? <laughs> right. I mean, I, the, I think the first one was not even like the kind we think it was so it was a huge hit, obviously. Right. But it's like, you know, it made thirty six million. It's not like one of these things where it demands four sequels. Sure. It wasn't Rocky. <laughs> right. But I think it became just such this cultural touch point. You know, I mean, and that the first one's 71 and this is what, 83. So I guess just once in a while, Clint would be like, well, let's do another one. You I know, think that's like, the other thing. I think Clint was right. obviously such a big star and the Western was going increasingly out of fashion. And he was like, I should figure out another thing I can pick up and put down whenever I want. Another tough ass character with a gun. What can I do? Cop. Right. Cop. Right. Right. Just stick with it. Why not make them all the same guy? Yeah. Now, number two, the box office is okay. a, a, a seismic movie. Very big deal movie. Um, I think it's sort of greeted with some kind of like with some with critical jeers, um, but it's a big hit. Okay. Um, it's a major star. Is it sort Footloose? of? No, Footloose is the same year as Starman. Right, okay. It, right. It's a crime movie. It's sort of the moment this star is switching from acclaimed, brilliant, 
theater guy who's like the master of 70s acting to the guy he the more over the top actor that he becomes this is kind of the hinge point this is a pacino movie it's an al pacino movie <laughs> of course it's a big one. uh it's a bit oh 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 it is uh the movie entitled scarface another christmas classic I, I'm right, right? Like, that's kind yes. of, that's the yes. moment where he he's unlocked the new thing. Right, yeah. Um, right. Because you see, like, yes. even, like, Bobby Deerfield, like, those those movies he made before this that weren't hits, like, he's still doing, he's doing the brooding internal kind of, you know. And then Scarface, he's just, yeah, he 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 never quite, he was, it's Pringles. Yeah, yeah this is he where could, he, he couldn't turns, stop. He, he popped. He, he turns into walking, right? The, this becomes his thing. Yeah. Um, Scarface, Griff. Do you have a star? Do you care about Scarface? I feel like we've never talked Scarface. Yeah, I kind of. I mean, it's like it's one of those movies where I feel like people are either evangelical about it or they're like that movie is garbage. Everyone is insane for liking it, and yes. I kind of respect both opinions. <laughs> yeah, I kind of agree with that. It, it, it's kind of undeniable when you watch it. You know, it, yeah, it, it's hard to right not have a little fun with it. Absolutely, but there is that thing of just like. I've seen De Palma movies and I've seen Pacino movies and I know what these guys can do. <laughs> right. Do you guys like Scarface? I think my, my big issue with Scarface is that I tend to associate Scarface with people who, like dudes who had Scarface posters in their well, this dorm is rooms. A big pro- I mean, it's a, it's a Lebowski issue. It's a it's, Fight it's Club a issue. It's a Saints issue. Is well, that, it is. that's the biggest a, issue. It, it is. Yes. It is. That's yes. it's all fair. Right. And right. so we need some distance from that. Like I've sort yeah. of come back around to some of those movies, not the Boondocks. <laughs> I think I've only seen Scarface like twice. I saw it as a teenager and then a few years ago I revisited it. And it's like I'm kind of like, that's that's fine. I can't imagine being fanatical about that movie. Uh I think it's a good movie, but I'm also imagining now like an Italian actor being like, I'm Cuban. Can you tell? Like, you know, if, if that happened today, how, how furious everyone would get. It's definitely not my favorite flavor of De Palma. Like uh, I blowout is like one of my all time favorite movies. And well, that's my favorite. And, yeah. you know, Phantom of the Paradise and, <clears throat> and Carrie and Untouchables, you know, that that is that is my De Palma. Like I, I think Scarface, I'm glad people love it, but it's not mine. Guadagnino is still supposed to do that, right? In theory, he is, but he was addicted to announcing that he was going to remake iconic movies for a while. He was always attaching himself to these remakes of movies. We were like, Luca, wasn't the Scarface? Didn't one of the Coens write the Scarface? Both of them did. It was maybe one of the last scripts that both of them worked on. Yeah. I mean, that alone, that alone sells a ticket to me. And I think it's supposed to be Diego Luna. I, yeah. I, he was supposed to do it with Ant- Anton Fuqua. I don't know if he's still on board. But there were there were competing Scarface projects. There was ones that that were like supposed to be uh, an updated version of the De Palma like Cheese Fest one, and then there were other ones that were supposed to be like more of an adaptation of the old the Paul uh, Mooney, the Paul Mooney, yeah, you know, right. uh, a gangster, movie. Yeah, the Howard Hawks movie, right? Yeah, right. And then I also think there, I've at times it seemed like their approach has been like just do another one. It's like. It's Star is Born. Just what is the new Scarface for this, this generation? This guy just it, needs to have a scar on his face. Right, it doesn't have to be beholden do to right? anything else from the two previous movies. As long as there's a mountain of cocaine somewhere, we're going to be happy. Number three, Griff. Okay, number three. Uh, is the best picture winner for 1983. It's a film we've covered on this podcast. It's a huge uh, Terms of Endearment? It's Terms of Endearment. Right, the number two movie at the box office for that year behind Return, Return of the Return Jedi? Of Jedi. 
That's correct. I just, I, yeah. I will always call out that kind of fact that like it used to be the best picture winner was the highest grossing film of the year. And if it wasn't, it was because there was a Star Wars and the best picture winner was still number two. It's the only other movie in 83 to crack a hundo. Yeah. Return wild. of Jedi's like makes $250 million over terms of endearment makes 108. Um, number four is Christine mm-hmm. uh, opening to $3 million on a thousand screens. And number five is a musical. Um, I feel like we're going to cover it on this podcast one day. Yentl. It's a director. <laughs> yeah. Barbara Streisand's Yentl. Yep. I know you want to cover Yentl. You, you can't I mean... slip that one by me. She's an easy three movie. We probably might have to do her Star is Born, I guess, because that's yeah. like, you know, there's a couple movies with her where you, she didn't direct them, but you kind of have to toss them in, I feel like. But right? I feel like, yeah, yes. Didn't you also bring up uh, Prince of Tides the other day in a very similar way where you were like Prince of Tides, which we will, of course, someday cover on this podcast. We gotta, we gotta do Streisand. Why not? Yeah. That's what the people demand. Let's, uh, we could do Streisand, and as you said, it's like, it's only really three movies, but we could also do a bonus episode on her basement mall. <laughs> Can you That's explain the weirdest that shit ever. It's one of the greatest blank checks in history. Do you not know this? No, tell me, tell me. I don't know what you're talking about. Her huge, uh, uh, mansion compound that she lives in with James Brolin. She's like, I love shopping more than anything, but I'm so famous. I can't go to normal people's stores anymore. So her entire basement is like a shopping mall with stores and employees who work at cash registers. And she walks into like her fake Banana Republic and looks at the stack of seven sweaters and goes like, do you have one in small? And they're like, we'll check in the back. It's role play. (laughs) She's already bought all the inventory. They buy things in the wrong size so that she has to look for the right thing. I swear well, to you, maybe this someone is true. else wants to go. Maybe like, what if I wanted to go? She'd be like, "Oh, maybe they have your size." But. I don't know. When I when I read, I, I forget where I read about that, but I got the imp- distinct impression that only Barb is allowed to shop. That's the exact. I don't yeah. think James is been, allowed to. You go. don't think I could knock on the door and be like, "Hey, I heard you have a Banana Republic." <laughs> is there a sale going on this weekend? <laughs> she comes in and finds you sitting in her rainforest cafe and is like, "What the fuck." <laughs> That was the there was the off Broadway play Buyer and Seller, which was about an employee in Barbara Streisand's cellar waiting all day for her to come in and buy something. I don't think anyone else goes in there. I get it. That's funny. Imagine uh, imagine clocking in every morning and thinking I might just be here for nine hours. Yeah, it's a fascinating idea. Yeah, like <laughs> we would have to go. We'd have to try and go. We'd have to go. <laughs> That'd be the best fucking job ever. Are you kidding me? You'd just be sitting there fucking watching TV and shit all day and then there'd be like a motion sensor activated or the ding of an elevator or something and then suddenly you just... But like what if what what if like one of the stores though is like everyone has, you know, I'm sure we all do, has like a problem store where every time you go right, in there right. something goes horribly wrong. Right. But you, you still have to go in there from time to Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe uh, Streisand has the equivalent of that. So imagine being the employee at that store where it's like, Oh. Not only may you be sitting around all day, but if you know Barbara's coming in, she's looking for something to get mad about because that's right. her imaginary problem. Story. That's that's the store where she Karen's out. Yes. Right. She demands exactly. to speak to the manager. Yes, even right. though she, that's her. She's the worst customer. Right? She's like, exactly. What do you mean they're, you're at a small like and 
they're like, you you told us to order all mediums. And she's like, what do you mean you're out of small? Like, play along. I'm you trying can't, to f- you're right. You can't break the fourth wall. You're not allowed. Yeah. I'm trying to find pictures of this, but it is like a main street. It's like a fake cobble street that then has different storefronts that sell different items. So it's like an outlet mall? Yes. It's like, the, had, like it's like one one main hallway in a like a shopping mall that you would yeah. go to. If you had, you know, Streisand level, I, I would absolutely do this. I would do this. Are you kidding me? I would do. Well, this. my question is like, is there something like, would you like rebuild Mars twenty one twelve in your oh. basement? Or, you know, like, is there some like closed theme restaurant or store that you would resurrect? Fuck. Like, is there something like that? That's a good idea. Mars twenty one twelve. Like the Rainforest Cafe made me think of it. Might be it would it. be cool yeah. to have a Sun Coast. <laughs> that would be yeah. a cool thing to poke you, you around. You build in. something that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right, like, my version of this would probably be a Virgin Megastore. You're right. Uh, that'd be neat. Right, I, I would like, like, a Sega World, maybe. I, I don't think there are any Sega Worlds anymore, but I used to go to Sega World all the time. You know what I would love love to imagine exists in Barbara Streisand's uh, little mall is a shoe store with Al Bundy as the uh, the shoe salesman. Ugh. Like, just, Mary, that's what fucking uh, Ed O'Neill just does now. When he's not, Ed O'Neill not just does like one sitcoms. shift a week. Yeah, he comes right. in he's in character still, as yeah. Al Bundy. Yeah, as Al Bundy, and I mean, yeah, that th- that's like the ultimate rich guy thing. Is I'm gonna hire hire somebody to to play their fucking role all, all the time. I posted the link in the chat, but there's like a bizarre uh, magazine slideshow of this, and one of them is like a, a one store oh has a gift wrapping table, so she can make oh employees wrap gifts that she just bought from her own inventory of her own store. It's so fucking bizarre. It's It's so so bizarre bizarre as well that this is in Harper's Bazaar and is being presented as like, you know, Barbara Streisand's fashionable life and not like Barbara Streisand's insanity further confirmed (laughs) by her insane fake store. Right. Barbara Streisand had a disassociative episode (laughs) and built a mall. Do you think the employees are hourly or do you think they're salary? I don't know. And (laughs) I wonder this constantly. I would, I would, I would pay money to have just a combat, like just sit and have a beer with someone that works at Barbara's mall. I I think, I don't know how much it was based on reality. Cause I think a lot of this is like secretive, right? To some degree, like even her doing this bizarre photo shoot was kind of a big deal 10 years ago because she had sort of like kept it a little bit low key for a while. But that well, play. You? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anybody about this shit. No, I think me? that play is about like he's like a struggling actor who worked at Disneyland. And when he gets fired, he picks up the job here. Like it's like that kind of circuit of like she wants to hire performers because they have to play their role. You know, I like how this this photo fo- this photo thing is all like the sub not subtext but like the whole thing's built around like oh it's not real stores it's this is just how i display my stuff but it's it's stores and there's also i might add a nightmare photo of her cradling a porcelain doll <laughs> yes yes true true nightmare shit outside b's doll shop where do you think the the line of weirdness begins because for me the demarcation line is the employees if yeah. she just had like a play mall to set up like set up that she could walk around in and pull shit off shelves that's one level of psychosis, but like to actually go to the effort of hiring human beings and having them work there. Correct. That's where it crosses into like, you need to talk to somebody about this. Right. Territory. And it's like Michael Jackson, you know, ne- Neverland Ranch. Uh, obviously there's a bunch of 
uh, stuff about Neverland Ranch that uh, we don't want to talk about. But like just even on the surface, even if it was all good, clean fun, he just decided I'm going to build an amusement park, you know, in my in my my thing and and have, you know, fucking. This I is think different a, because it, it, even right, even though it was uh, for salacious ends, part of it was like, I want other people to be able to ride. Yes, exactly. He was bringing like scores of children through there and their parents and who fucking knows who else. But this is just Barbara. <laughs> it's just it's it's I want to be able to shop without anyone recognizing me. It's this, it's this like, is, right. This is all evidence of why we should do Barbara Streisand on the podcast. So <laughs> yeah. it's got to happen sometime. Yeah, I guess so. And speaking of Michael Jackson, he would just he would just shut stores down and go in and shop by himself. I don't know why she would. She just wouldn't do that. And and and, yeah. and point at things. That was his thing. Right. He would just be like uh, that, that, that. Right. And then. Yeah, people are just running around bagging everything. The last photo I posted in the chat is the the underground Main Street Mall made over for Christmas. Do hey, you think look at festive. <laughs> now, do you think do you think that she organizes this, or it's someone's job to redecorate everything for Christmas to surprise her? Here's my question. Maybe it's just happening all by itself and no one knows what's going on. It's a right? magical like what? It's, mall. It's got a life of its own. Yeah. We got a night at the museum situation going on here. I think I think it's somewhere up the middle, Griff. I think it's like yeah, she has she has someone whose job it is to redecorate the mall for Christmas every year, sure. but right. she doesn't know what it will look like. Right. Okay. So that part is the surprise, but she knows it's right. coming. Because there, there is that nice feeling of like, oh, New York City in November. Oh, the Christmas decorations have gone up. Like it just <laughs> happens overnight one day and you're a little surprised by it. You know, I'm sure she wants to replicate that feeling of being like, oh, it already? <laughs> uh, pods of cast miniseries coming to 2022, I guess. <laughs> yeah, got to happen. Just go store by store. Just ignore the movie side of things. Just go store by store. You all need to. Break just, into that mall and record an episode in there before I, she finds I out. I really want to. Oh, that would be sick. To, to wrap up, uh, we would all get arrested. Uh, <laughs> some of the other things in the By top her ten own Chris- fake police. She has a yes, mall police. Yes. <laughs> and, and we would be dragged in front of Dreisand Court. You know, God knows. You're going to Dreisand Prison. Like, Does she have Barbara Bucks, you think, instead of like, <laughs> yes, using regular probably, currency? Probably. Steve yes. Gutenberg is playing Mahoney and he's the security guard in the mall. Um, a Christmas story. You got the big chill. You got uh, the James Bond knockoff. Never seen ever again. You got all um, the right moves with Tom Cruise. Oh, Tom Cruise. Yeah. The other one is a good movie. Uh, the Smurfs and the Magic Flute, oh, which is weird. apparently some sort of Belgian Smurf movie that uh, came out in the, 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 the States like many years after it pre- had premiered in uh europe right and okay the smurfs okay. play a major part they do not appear until 35 minutes into the film and the film is 74 minutes long wow sounds pretty bad <laughs> that's right. the jaws of smurfs movies because okay because this this movie was made by peo who is the creator of the smurfs and yep. then in the 80s Hanna barbera get the rights to the smurfs and make the american cartoon and this has no association with that cartoon but was released then in theaters to capitalize on the cartoon show that kids knew. Weird. Is that's just I that's the only reason I mentioned it. It just seemed like a weird little, you know, made a few million bucks. They did that a lot in the 80s, by the way. I know it's an old another 
topic, but like I remember they they, they put they like trick children. Well, yeah, well they put like the He Man. They like put two He Man episodes together and released those. Secret and, of the Sword, yeah. baby. Yeah, like I, yeah, I remember that that very vividly. I was a big He Man kid. I like He Man. This is bizarre, though. Uh, hey, me too. Uh, this is bizarre because it's not. It's it's like if you went to the theater, it was different than the thing you were watching. Gargamel's not in this. Smurfette's not in this. No Gargamel. No Gargamel. That was an American no creation. Yeah. Yeah. So was Smurfette. Right. Yeah. I know. Huge problem. Yeah. Um. Anyway, we're done. Christine. We're done. We did Christine. a great job, guys. I, I think we talked more yeah. about Barbara Streisand's mall <laughs> by the end of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. But you know, that's how. It Frankly, goes. it's yeah. more fascinating than Christine and scarier. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that picture of her with the porcelain doll is scarier than anything John Carpenter's ever ever done, and that's saying something. Absolutely. Uh, guys, uh, uh, KingCast, obviously, people should listen to. We agree. Uh, you've certainly done a good job of selling the, the fuller episodes, which I need to queue up now. I, I want to dig deep into all uh, the things he was teasing about his Christine. And you'll hear, you'll hear some, uh, some indications of kind of what drives him about the story. And so what I think that, uh, I mean, he, 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 his angle on that was very clearly a, um, he wanted to give us a queer reading of, of Christine. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's necessarily going to be what the movie is, but it just kind of shows what's appealing to him on a character level and on like a subtext level with that, with that story. So I think you'll have a really good understanding of at least how he's going to approach the material listening to that episode. Uh, cool. That sounds good. Anything else you guys want to plug? Not really. Just our show. Uh, we've got. Well, listen uh, to well, King when, is the, when is this? Uh, when is this airing? This is dropping. It's October in a few weeks. Sixteenth. Uh, October. Uh, no, September nineteenth. Oh, this is this is recent. More more. This is closer. September nineteenth. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, right after this airs, we've got some amazing guests lined up between now and the end of the year, and uh, of course, we got the Patreon. Uh, it's backslash the kingcast. And um, we've just got some surprises up our sleeves. It's a, it's a, it's a fun show. And if you're even remotely a Stephen King fan, I would, I would recommend yep, it. New episodes drop every Wednesday and you can find us on Twitter at kingcast19. Uh, awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming on, extending your knowledge. No, we need to get you guys on for something now. Please. I love yes. Stephen King. All right. I'm just a dork. I, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert. I just, but I love the guy. Griffin, where are you at in your Stephen? Have you have you read a lot of King? You don't I have, have not. To have I I don't think I've read a single King. I've seen a good number of the movies, but now that I maybe like the idea of reading something specifically to come on the show using yeah, that as an that input. would be let's fun talk. to do. Yeah. I mean, your people call yeah, up. Yeah, let's talk. We'll figure it out. Well, thank you so much for having us. This was great. Hey, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you all for listening. And please remember listening, listening, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. Thank you to Lane Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. And people should check out their new album, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Online. You can find it wherever music's found. Uh, Apple Music, Bandcamp, Spotify, what have you. Thank you to uh, Joe Bon Pat Rounds for our, our artwork. JJ Birch, Nick Lariano for our research. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. And you can go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we are uh, uh, trekking into uh, the tombs of the mummy. That's right. That's right. We're in the middle of that. We're getting wrapped up in the mummy. As I would call it, it's mummy in the bank.
It's Mummy in the Bank. Thank you for that. A yeah. joke you'll hear me make several times over the next couple months. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I will not quit it. Uh, and tune in next week for our episode on Starman with returning guest Katie Rich. That's right. And as always, my fundamental question is, does Barbara Streisand's mall have a food court? It's just a sparrow. And they do they give out samples? <laughs> <laughs>